Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome to the 15th episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, along with me, as always, my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I think it's amazing. I think everyone should appreciate, Shag, that uh, we are doing the issue of Who's Who, all about Vertigo, DC's realm of dark fantasy, right around the time for Halloween. Uh, we actually planned this when we started the very first episode of Who's Who way back in 2011. We timed them out exactly so we would land at this exact moment with this exact issue. That is next level podcasting uh, pr- programming. So I hope everybody appreciates that. I was just impressed that we hit the mark. I mean, I wasn't sure there was times in, I don't know, the, the mid-2000s. I just I wasn't sure if we'd hit the mark. But, man, I, I think it was pretty good. You know, the, the real trick is when we're going to pull off uh, having the impact issues of who's who covered at the turn of the century i mean that's that's <laughs> going to be really impressive when we hit that uh, you guys just wait it's coming <laughs> back in back in 2015 when we argued about this tragedy so just wait five years it's really going to pay <laughs> so yes this is the spooky halloween episode where we talk about dc's realm of dark fantasy so very exciting and folks you may be listening to us on your iPhone or your Android device or whatever. But please know that now you can also listen to us on Amazon Music. So in addition to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Google Podcasts, you can do Amazon Music as well because we're everywhere. So It's exciting, isn't it? it very much so. Very much so. Um, I, we're going to talk more about this at the end of the show, but there is one. Uh, this isn't necessarily news, but it might be newsworthy to you folks. Pay attention to the end of the show for the Zooms Who section, because we're going to talk about a way that you can get your hands on the Zooms Who uh, collection of, of various entries so you can see them with your own eyes. So, uh, <gasps> yeah, pay attention to the end, folks. That will be there. And also worth noting, uh, the Siskoid continues on with his Who's Editing podcast, where he is going through each issue of Who's Who, basically just following our uh, what the crumbs we've left behind for him and uh, giving Frank uh, a Grant Morrison-esque outlet for his insanity in the comment section there. But uh, so, yeah, check that out. It's, a bit, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed hearing you sort of going through the Who's Who episodes or books again from a completely different angle. It's been a lot of fun. To find all the Who's Editing shows on Twitter, just use the hashtag bandwagon. <laughs> that's true that's true that's, that's absolutely the truth so um before we get too much further because we do have a lot to talk about with this issue because it's it's a weird one folks uh we should take a second to thank our sponsors folks this episode of the who's who podcast is sponsored in part by instocktrades.com instocktrades is your best online source for trades hardcovers and other collected editions all for up to 42 percent off with free shipping for orders of 50 dollars or more so what did you bring for this spooky vertigo-esque or vertigo-inducing i should say uh episode uh, I leaned more heavily on the Vertigo than the Spooky, uh, namely that I'm picking Preacher, uh, which, of course, was a Vertigo series, although that's uh, not – it was after the Who's Who series. But it's one of my all-time favorite comic books, period, pre- the original Preacher series. So this is the Preacher 25th Anniversary Omnibus Hardcover Volume 1 by Steve Dillon. Uh, the cover's by 
Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon with the cover by Glenn Fabry. This collects Preachers 1 through 33, <clears throat> Special Scene of Killers, and the Preacher Special Cassidy Blood and Whiskey, number one. 1,088 pages. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, which we, you could kill someone with it, which is the kind of thing that might happen in an issue of Preacher. Uh, the normal price is $125, but in stock trades price is $72.50. That's 42% off. And, of course, since we know that shipping is free for $50 more, this would be free to ship it to you if you bought this behemoth. Uh, if you've never read Preacher, you absolutely should. It's one of the greatest comic book series of all time. It's one of my favorites. So Preacher, Volume 1. It's uh, it's it's worth that amount of money just to read Arseface that many times. So, <laughs> if only Rob sound like that on every episode. Uh, I I searched for something with Shade the Changing Man. Now there is some Shade the Changing Girl stuff out there, which is very good. But I wanted to lean in on Shade, so uh, I didn't quite get there. But I found something unique that I didn't even know existed at this point. It's called Marvel Monograph Trade Paperback Art of Chris Boccolo. Whoa, dude. Chris, uh, and I may be saying his name wrong. Maybe it's Pacello. I don't know. I've always said Bacalo. I'm just going to keep saying it that way. Anyway, the guy is an amazing artist. And, you know, he knocked it out of the park with Shade. He knocked it out of the park with Death, the High Cost of Living. Then he went across the street to Marvel in 1994. <laughs> and the way this entry is written, you'd think that he, uh, he'd done nothing prior to that. But anyway, he worked, uh, you know, he helped co-create Generation X. He worked on Doctor Strange, Uncanny X-Men, Amazing Spider-Man, Captain America, Wolverine, X-Men. So what this is is a collection of lots of his work, uh, they say, from every angle. Uh, basically, a, uh, an artistic study of his work in a, as a keepsake in an art book form. It's 112 pages, you know, all, all the art inside is by Chris Bacala. I've seen some of the interior pages. It's fantastic. It is black and white with some color. Uh, it, really, the black and white works great, though, because you can really see his amazing line work. And by the point he went over to Marvel in 94, man, he was extremely accomplished. And whether you're an X-Men fan or not, I don't think anyone will deny that the generation... Series was gorgeous to look at. I mean, it was just absolutely stunning what he was doing over there. So anyway, uh, there it's got some text parts in there written by John Rhett Thomas. Uh, it's only nineteen ninety nine normally on Insight Trades. You get it for forty two percent off, so it's only eleven dollars and fifty nine cents. That is a hell of a deal for that much Chris Bacalo uh, artwork. So I, I highly recommend you guys pick it up. And that's over at InStockTrades.com. Now, folks, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support because, you know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows and uh, having to bankroll Chris Franklin and all of his inflatable Halloween things in his front yard, it requires a lot of money. Uh, and and we also host a bunch of shows and MP3 files. That, that might be part of it. But anyway, we found ourselves up against uh, a lot of really heavy expenses as we continue to grow. And we launched the Patreon, and you guys really stepped up to help us. And I and I mean it when I say this. The network would not be on the air if it was not for y'all's help. And we sincerely appreciate that. So if you're enjoying Who's Who podcast or any other show on the network, actually, the best way to support the show is by visiting our Patreon. What's that address, Rob? Patreon.com slash podcast. Yes. And while you're there, please consider supporting the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And at certain sponsorship tiers, you get mentioned on your favorite Fire and Water Podcast shows, just like these folks. Christopher Lydon, Damian Whiter, Daniel Budnick, David Ace Gutierrez, Nathan Archer, Gord Tolton, Jeremiah Jones-Goldstein, Chuck Coletta, Corey Drew, Michael Atchison, Michael O'Brien, Noah Tarnow, Paul Kenzel, Tom Perrain, and Tom Penneries. Awesome. So, folks, please go out to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Now, Rob, we are going to talk today about who's who number 15. Now, one of the things, besides being a really different, different, different kind of issue that's important about this issue, Rob, is that's number 15 of 16. <gasps> the penultimate issue. One of my favorite words. <laughs> I've been waiting so many years to use that. So, uh, yeah. So uh, we, we'll finish up with Who's Who, the, the 
who's who in the DC universe, the loose leaf, the first volume next time uh, that we do an episode. Then we've got a couple of update issues and we've got the impact. We got Mayfair. We've got lots of other surprises planned. So again, as Rob said, we got another five years in the can here, but, uh, but this is exciting. So yeah, this thing went on sale, uh, November 19th, 1991. So people were probably eating their Thanksgiving pie, you know, some pumpkin pie while they, while they flipped through this thing. Just missed Halloween for that one though. They should, they should have done it the month before. Anyway, the cover date was January 1992 though. So folks, here's one of the things that's different. You know, when we do these issues, it's got a whole smattering of characters. Like from every realm, we talk about a bunch of different books. That's not so much the case this time because there are, if you like Swamp Thing, that's great because there's seven entries about Swamp Thing in here. <laughs> if you like Doom Patrol, wonderful because there's six entries in here for that. If you like Sandman, you're in the right place because there are four entries for that. Books of Magic has three. Shade the Changing Man has two. And then there's a couple other miscellaneous ones in here. So really it focuses in on just like five different properties for the most part. So it also gives us a chance to talk about these things a little bit deeper. And um, Rob, so I'm going to ask you, looking at this list of characters here, how many of these were you already familiar with or at least had read? Uh, well, okay, that's two different numbers. Uh, okay. familiar, familiar with most of them. Read, very few of them. Okay. <laughs> now, I was reading all of these books, surprisingly. Uh, I, some of them I came to a little bit later and then caught up or whatever. But I, you know, this is my, what are you laughing at? Eternity! Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I guess I'll have to go back and listen to our Secret Origins episode to figure out what Rob's talking about and why I'm shooting him a bird right now. But, uh... <laughs> So uh, I was actually deep, deep, deep in my dark, dark, I'm a grown-up phase of reading comics, man. <laughs> you know, I was wearing black, <laughs> and I wanted to read grown-up comics. So I was reading all this stuff. And um, looking through the list of characters, I'm like, uh-huh, I know it, I know it, I know it. And I actually got to one, I'm like, I have no idea who the hell that is. So when we get to that issue, I'll tell you, the, the one character, I had no clue who that was going into this. Now, if, you I mentioned- a, if I had a time machine, oh, my number one thing would be, of course, to go back and kill Hitler. But number two would be to visit you in the 90s. I had a lot more hair. <laughs> I just, I, I, I can't, I just, the thought that I, I will never get to experience that makes me very sad. <laughs> You're so full of crap. <laughs> now, you mentioned Vertigo, and, uh, and so we should mention that. So, yes, this is, again, cover dated January 1992. Now, Vertigo actually launched a year later. So basically what happened, Karen Berger got pulled in by the DC guys and said, look, take all these weird dark fantasy books that we've got and, and make an imprint and, and make comic grown up. And that's kind of how Vertigo happened. So at this point, I don't know if the germ of that idea, idea was already there, but certainly, if nothing else, this who's who entry, clearly you know, the editors that were working at DC were able to see we have a corner of books that are not like anything else. You know, they sure carried the Mature Readers logo, but so did Green Arrow. You know, but that in the question, but that didn't get folded into this stuff. So uh, they, they they recognized as early as here that uh, something's different about these folks, and that they should do something and, and collect them together. Uh, I do. I actually kind of like the term dark fantasy. Um, I don't know. It kind of resonates because Vertigo's it tells you how you feel. Dark fantasy is more of a descriptor for this these sort of books. Though I thought that was pretty appropriate. Yeah, it could have. They definitely. I, this is the only time I can think of where they, it was called this. Maybe it was other places, but this feels like that feels like a very useful subtitle of what Vertigo means. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, so our cover here, we're not going to talk about it exclusively because we'll get into it when we get to the entry, but it is the Doom Patrol by Richard Case. We'll spend a lot more time on that. Um, I'm going to go inside of the letters page. So a couple of letters worth mentioning, not a lot. Uh, they're, they're fairly standard, nice. There, there aren't a lot of, like, excuse me, this is all wrong sort of letters. But uh, there is a, someone does ask about Black Mask, and they say that Black Mask basically is not worthy of a who's who entry, which is sort of shocking to me because I've always sort of, in my mind, pictured him as a pretty important Batman villain. But at, at one point in history, he wasn't. 
the letters are fairly uh, complimentary, and there is some discussion about classifications, you know, like hero versus villain, people taking issue with Lobo being called hero, Supernatural gets brought up, and I only want to mention that because pretty much I hope you guys like the color purple. Because, and I don't necessarily mean the movie. I mean, it's a good movie. But, yeah, what, the movie? Yeah. But pretty much almost every single entry in this book, whether they're good or bad, has a purple border. So uh, <laughs> Rob, Rob's beloved border discussion won't get to happen as much as, as, as previous times. Oh, darn. Now, before I leave the letters page, there's, there's, I got one more thing to mention. But do you have anything on the letters page before we go, Rob? Uh, no. Okay. So I, I do want to mention they did tease in the letters page. And we're going to come back to this issue is uh, this topic is that next issue Catwoman is uh, they have a, the Catwoman entry will be featured by now they don't come out and say it they talk about wall crawler blah 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 but the Catwoman entry will be done by Todd McFarlane in the next issue that's very exciting so uh, maybe we'll talk about that again towards the end of this episode <laughs> all right uh, let's get into it Rob here we go first entry Abigail Arcane so we are looking at um, well okay she didn't have super name. we're looking at Abigail and she is there by the swamp she's by the bank she's sort of lazily drapesing her hand through the water it's a beautiful scene you see you know trees and vines and ferns and things around her she's wearing just a you know typical thing you see her wearing her red t-shirt and cut off blue jean shorts and if you're not familiar with Ab- Abigail Arcane then come on people wake up it's from Swamp Thing and she's got her white hair with the black streets she looks very very pretty um, the thing that stands out to me the most in the drawing here are the, are the use of the diagonal lines. It gives it a very sort of sketch quality, which I really, really like. Oh, I should mention, by the way, the art's by Stan Walk, uh, and he is associated with Swamp Thing because he drew some of the early issues of the Saga Swamp Thing era. What do you think about the art? I think it's great. I think it's a terrific listing. Uh, a couple things. First of all, I love that Swamp Thing is not pictured. I think that's cool. Like, she just gets her own thing, which is I, I appreciate. Uh, the logo is awful. I don't know why they chose to. We, hey, we it's, kept, it's not a font this time, at least. Well, that's the funny thing is we in previous issues, we kept complaining that these superheroes get these boring typefaces. And then when you get a supporting character who could just get a typeface, they decide to go all logo on her, <laughs> uh, which is weird. So it seems inappropriate. I love the drawing by Stan Walk. I think it's great. Um, the line work, you mentioned the line work. The heavy uh, brush lines that you see on her arms and her legs and her hair to represent the shadows looming from the, uh, the trees over. I feel as though that is Stan Walk purposely trying to emulate that look uh, that Tottleben, John Tottleben brought to Steve Bissett's work. Because that, mm. was, that was a touch that he brought to a lot of their work when they did Swamp Thing. And I'm not saying in any, in any way that Stan Walk is ripping them off. I'm saying he's, to me, he's doing somewhat of an homage to making it look a little bit like their work. But his own definite style. I think it's a really nice piece. She's, a, she's beautiful. She's a beautiful woman. But there's no, it's not TNA, though. No, like. not at all. Like it's just, it's just a very tranquil, nice picture. I think for a supporting uh, character, it's to me it's one of the better listings because it's to me it's a dynamic image uh, for a character that you know visually it's just a woman with white hair and shorts and a t-shirt. But again, as you say, everyone knows who she is at this point. She's been in what two movies, two TV shows, and an animated cartoon. I mean, good lord! Right, exactly. Um, in in um I should mention the. I'm glad you kind of mentioned the TNA thing because she has been used for that before. Yes, you know, and she does wear Daisy Duke cutoffs, and yet here it's it's very demure. It's really well done. I especially like on the backside the the profile picture. Yeah, it's a great I, shot. I don't know that it necessarily looks like Abigail and how I picture her, but it's beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. So, yeah. um, let's see. You, know, you mentioned you're glad the Swamp Thing wasn't on the cover. I wasn't expecting Swamp Thing, but I guess I was kind of expecting the environment to be reacting to her a bit, maybe. But either way, it, it works. It's just uh, it's not what I quite expected. Either way. So, all right, yeah. 
So I'm not going to go into a lot of great length about her backstory, folks, because she's one of the most famous characters in the dark fantasy realm. You guys probably already know it. Rob rattled off all the movies and and stuff like that. So I'm going to hit some of the high points here. You know, she is Anton Arcane's niece, who is obviously Swamp Thing's main nemesis. We'll talk more about him in a bit. And she is known as Swamp Thing's unofficial wife. I was surprised to see unofficial. I thought they actually, like, were considered legit married. But all right, so unofficial listed here. Her history is very, very complex and, and does go sort of this happened and this happened and this happened in the entry, which is not my favorite thing. But a couple of key points to walk away with is her father died when she was very, very young. But it turns out he didn't really die. Her uncle, Anton Arcane, put his body back together uh, in a Frankenstein sort of style, in patchwork man sort of style, if you will. Um, Anton Arcane keeps hanging around. She marries her, uh, this guy named Matt Cable. Her first love, Matt Cable, was friends with Alec Holland and his wife. Later on, Matt Cable goes through all kinds of problems. We'll talk a little bit about that later. She falls in love, of course, with Swamp Thing, considers herself the wife. And she even at this point, they even now have a daughter named Tefe together. Uh, and again, I'm just hitting sort of the core concept of the character rather than this happened, this happened. I, I did want to mention a few things. I mean, they've had so many great actresses play her. Uh, Crystal Reed played her in the most recent TV show. She did a fantastic job. Adrian Barbeau, she played Alice. Alice, <laughs> hold it together, Rob. Uh, it's a, I'm about to do the same in a moment anyway. Uh, she played Alice Arcane. Then Heather Locklear oh, uh, did play Abigail Arcane. Uh, and then Carrie Wer- Werber, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, Werber, she played Abigail Ar- Arcane in the TV series. She was from um, Sliders and Remote Control before that, or after that, I guess. And then uh, T- Tabitha St. Germain, who, if you look her up, she did the voice of uh, Abigail on the cartoon. If you look her up on IMDb, she has done every freaking thing ever. Oh, my gosh. Her her list of stuff goes on forever. So a lot of amazing people have portrayed her. I've never heard of that uh, actress. Uh, Tabitha St. Germain? Yeah. I had neither. But once I looked at her IMDb, I'm just like, holy crap, she's done a lot. So um, her border, she's one of the ones that's not purple. It's blue for supporting cast. Um, And here the writer is Peter Sanderson. And her first appearance is Swamp Thing, the first series, issue number two, all the way back to December 1972. And at this point, Swamp Thing was on issue 115, which is deep, deep, deep into the, uh, you know, getting, well, into the series. And this is the Nancy Collins era, which was a very much a very good horror gothic sort of era. That's when I started reading Swamp Thing, was during the Nancy Collins era myself. And uh, if you want more on Swamp Thing, you know, of course, uh, we're going to be talking a lot more about it, folks. But you can check out Midnight the Podcasting Hour for some Swamp Thing coverage. Also, our buddy Ben Avery does this podcast called Swamp Things. And uh, uh, we'll save that for – never mind. We'll save it for the Swamp Thing entry. I had something else I was going to add, but it can wait. <laughs> All right. Up next is American Scream, which is, in fact, a font, uh, not a logo. And this depicts a sort of uh, twisted version of Uncle Sam. Uh, it's got the big American sort of hat with the red, red and white stripes and the stars and the blue border. He's got crazy white hair and a crazy, crazy sort of uh, – chin goatee thing and um hey american scream uh, venom called and he wants his tongue back because um, his tongue's just sticking out all over the place the art here is by jamie hewlett who has done a whole bunch of really impressive shade coverage by this point but i gotta say this is not uh one of his impressive pieces it's it's a real disappointment actually hmm. uh, i like the art i mean i like jamie hewlett i'm a big fan it's, i do too uh, so uh it's just a, basically a portrait there's not a whole lot to it um, I like the insets, the drawing of him, uh, it, I guess, grasping onto shade with his little bony hand. And then there's a picture of him longer with the hat on. I, I will say, though, it is sort of funny. It looks, uh, you know, talking about, oh, man, America is so, dy- is so dystopia in 1990s just seems so quaint now, doesn't it? <laughs> 
<laughs> That's hilarious. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, so I'll fill you guys in on, on who the American Scream is. This, it, I, I find this fascinating. This comes from Shay the Changing Man. And the gist of it is uh, it is the sentient, insane personification of American culture. So ta- imagine all the things about American culture and imagine it becomes embodied in this horrible, malevolent force that's absolutely insane and is warping reality and projecting that madness uh, all over people. It's all based on Americana. I'll give you an example in a minute. So here's the origin of it, though. So Shade himself is from this other dimension called Meta. Uh, which is uh, an extra dimensional world. And there he's an agent of this. He's an agent. And this agent role is called the changing man. Well, there's other changing mans as well. And this other changing man was on a mission and he was in this thing called the deep culture tank. And he was exposed to an overdose of Americana and it drove him absolutely insane. So as he comes out, all of this stuff just starts spewing out of his head, just madness pours out of his, bo- his body, and it becomes its own sentient, malevolent force. And that's what the American Scream is. And it makes its way to Earth, and it's here to spread the madness. And, um, and one of the ways it did, I, I just, in fact, I just busted out my shade issues uh, last night and started rereading them. I'm on issue, I'm on issue three right now, but. What an issue, like for example, in issue two, what the American Scream does is he looks at America is so obsessed with the death of JFK. And so it goes to Dallas, the American Scream does, possesses some people there, and even makes this giant sphinx grow out of the square where Kennedy was killed. And it's a sphinx with Kennedy's face on it. And you know, the, the sphinx, uh, ancient Egyptian sphinx, would force you to answer a riddle, and if you didn't get it right, it would kill you. Well, in this case, it's asking everyone who killed J- John F. Kennedy. And if you can't answer it correctly, whatever that correct answer is, it kills you. And so he's just maiming people throughout Dallas, uh, this giant monster, and, and Shade is there trying to battle it. And uh, it, it's really an interesting, fascinating story. And it's also very interesting to see uh, that Peter Milligan's the guy who wrote this. So you've got a British writer sort of uh, going through and exploring Americana. And so it's, uh, it's very interesting. It's a really good series. If I remember, I think Dr. Ange is also a big fan of Shade the Changing Man, if I recall correctly. But it's a, a really fantastic series, folks. I've never. Read, I, I was about to say I've read some of the issues, but I never read it, uh, lawyer, or, you know, regularly or anything like that. So I didn't know about any of that stuff. That does sound kind of interesting. I mean, in, in like, all right, uh, we're going to get to Doom Patrol, but let's just you know, everyone understands Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. That it's just batshit crazy, and. I've always felt, and boy, Paul Hicks is going to get pissed and Mike Garvey, but I always felt like Grant, uh, Grant did a lot of craziness for craziness sake, like weirdness for weirdness sake. And Shade, it seemed a little, even though Grant's, everyone claims he's a genius and all this, it feels like Peter Milligan's story was a little more calculated, a little more planned out, a little more purposeful with the Americana and the, and the madness that Shade was battling. Cause as you, as you're following Shade and Kathy, who we'll talk about in a bit, they're very much real people. You have an anchor in Shade and Kathy as you're reading it. So the craziness, it doesn't just like make you feel like you're completely lost in what the hell's going on. Um, so I don't know. I, I, if I had to pick between Shade and Doom Patrol, I'd pick Shade. So. Uh, okay, so the border is black for villain. First appearance is Shade the Changing Man number one, which is the second series, not the original Steve Ditko one, uh, in July 1990. You know, that's interesting. There's no creative by Steve Ditko here. Hmm. Oh, well, it's American Screen. Never mind. Uh, we'll check when we get to, to Shade the Changing Man. Sorry about that. And the writer on this entry is Mark Wade. And um, right at this point, Shade the Changing Man was on issue number 19. So um, even though the story here says the Shade is still battling uh, the American Scream at the time of this writing, it may be the case that the time Mark Wade sat down and wrote this, but in actuality, the day when this who's who hit the shelves, they had just defeated the American Scream the month before. So, mm. all right, moving on. 
Up next, Anton Arcane in uh, an entry that would make the human centipede a little jealous. So, I mean, this is just gross, people. All right. So it's he's this giant, fleshy creature. He's got sort of an insectoid form, especially like the centipede body and the centipede legs, but it's all flesh-colored. And he's got these spinal ridges, that, like the, the backbone that stick up out of the body. His face looks like um, a lot like the Swamp Thing's face, except in flesh-toned. Uh, with the with the weird sort of pulled up jaw uh, and the in the nose and stuff like that, and he's got one insect eye, and he's crawling around. Um, it's it's really quite gross and disgusting. It's by Kelly Jones. It's effective and it's it's expertly crafted and creepy as hell, like it's supposed to. But it's still disgusting. I would say. My biggest question is, what is that fleshy thing laying on the ground under Anton Arcane that's not connected to his body in any way? What is that? I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't want to know. It's so gross. It's so gross. But again, it's it's expertly crafted. I mean, Kelly Jones drew the hell out of this thing. It's just really gross. <laughs> the, uh, the hell out of this thing. Ah, but I'm pumped. So, all right. So, yes, Kelly Jones is our artist on this. Now, Kelly Jones uh, had worked on Swamp Thing, not a tremendous amount at this point. He'd done some here and there. But, I mean, I, I think everyone agrees. Kelly Jones is sort of the logical successor to Bernie Wrightson. I, think, I don't think that's argued by anyone. So... Uh, when you get on the backside here, Anton Arcane does get a created by credit, Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson. thought that was interesting that they, Anton gets that credit, but Abigail doesn't. It's kind of weird. But anyway, this is the, in all caps, the T-H-E, Swamp Thing bad guy, folks. I mean, no, no, no mistaking that. He, Swamp Thing may fight a bunch of different characters, but at the end of the day, Anton Arcane is always the bad guy that comes back. Um, some of the things in this entry that they talk about, you know, he's been alive since World War One. He created these creatures called the Unmen back in World War Two. He knew, I mean, he dealt with Hitler, all this kind of stuff. Um, he is Abby's uncle, as we talked about, and he created the Patchwork Man. Now, he, what, what led him to this demonic-looking form was, or monstrous form, is he tried to possess the Swamp Thing's body, and pretty much that failed. And from that point on, it's just been one constant horror show of bodies for him. <laughs> it's been a series of insects, this flesh creature. He's been a demon, all these different things. This is the flesh version. Again, I really think there's a lot of connection with the Swamp Thing in the face. And again, there's a lot more of Anton's history. But again, I, I don't want to go beat for beat that this happened, this happened, this one. You've read a lot more Swamp Thing, especially the early stuff, because I still haven't even finished reading all the Alan Moore stuff myself. So what's, what's your take on this character? Is this a character that's like, hell yeah, when he comes back, it's like exciting? Or is it like, oh, it's that guy again? Like, what, where do you land on this kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, I could see what you're saying. It could be a little – I mean, I always liked it when he came back. I mean, yeah, you uh, could be fall into that Joker syndrome where you're like, him again? But Anton Arcane, I mean, I think the level to which Alan Moore specifically really took him was so amazing that you were like, this guy's so awful that uh, I can see why you would just want to keep returning to him. Um, I love the, the final paragraph in this listing where it says, after a short season in hell, uh, Arcane was raised to the level of a low-caste tormentor by the demon lord Beelzebub. Given the recent upheavals in the structure of hell, Arcane's current location and status is unknown. I love the idea that uh, there's this bureaucracy in hell, that it doesn't even end after you die and you go to hell. You still have to deal with red tape. And politics and nonsense like that, that's just fantastic. Like, there's just, you know, hey, Peter, what's happening? And it's in hell. Like, it just <laughs> continues on forever. Um, so, yeah, well, I, 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 I imagine some of that is reference to do different things. One is demon, in the demon, you know, we even did an entry in Hell's Hierarchy not long ago. Uh, and then also, um, I'm not sure if Sandman had gone to hell and dealt with Lucifer at this point or not. But maybe it, that, that's maybe what it's referring to. 
It could be. Could be. I just I looked. It's written by. Oh, by the way, I went to meet Jeffrey Lang. Oh yeah, let's talk about Jeffrey that. Lang. I was like, who the hell is Jeffrey Lang? So I looked him up on Mike's Amazing World, and he only has like three credits. I know. And one is like a Star Trek comic from DC, and then two were. Uh, I think like, like an uh, independent book, I think, like right? Valiant books or something, something or some, some independent thing. Yeah. And that's it. And I was like, well, how the hell did he end up writing the listing for Anton Arcane? I have no he's, idea. He's got a couple Swamp Thing entries actually. So it makes me wonder if it's a pseudonym, uh, or if, 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 you know, I don't know, the Swamp Thing editor was trying to cultivate someone who they thought maybe would take over after Nancy Collins, or maybe he was ed- going to be an editor or something. Uh, it's very strange. Because he's he wrote a few of these. There's a few people that are kind of surprising uh, writers as we get to. Thank you for bringing that up. I forgot to mention yeah. it. So I it, so the, we're going to run into this a lot, folks. Again, seven different Swamp Thing characters in this book. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you you can watch a movie, you can watch a cartoon, blah blah blah. It, it's all there. You got it. And I'm not going to say it's on you know what issue they're on because I already covered it. So, all right, fine. It's issue 115. That's the last time I'm going to tell you that, folks. <laughs> Quit asking, Jesus. All right. Up next is Black Orchid by Dave McKean. So um, it is a very, very purple, 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 orchid-colored entry. It's it's two images of the same woman, and you've got one in the, I guess, the background uh, towards the top of the page where she's turned sideways. She's got her eyes closed and her hair is flowing and sort of uh, it's all purple except there's this white strip that goes from her eyes throughout her, and it kind of joins in with her hair. And then there's another picture down towards uh, the, the right-hand side where it's her. She's looking right at the camera. Again, that same white strip is across the eyes, and you see her holding up a, a, like a little globe. It's it's like, it's like any sort of Dave McKean piece. It's uh, every, Dave McKean is all over the board. I shouldn't say it's like any piece because everything Dave McKean draws is different. In fact, if you ever look at uh, Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, they give a graph of where all the artists land, and Dave McKean's in every quadrant because <laughs> he's capable of doing everything. Um in this particular one, it's it's sort of simplistic, and yet it's still beautiful. Um, I don't know. It's hard to describe. I, I do love this entry quite a bit, though. I like Dave McKean's work for the most part. It's not very um, uh, sequential, sort of. I mean, he's That's really fair. better at sort of just painterly images. And my first instinct was to say, ah, I wish this was a little more of a traditional who's who listing where you could see more of the character and get a better idea of what she is rather than this sort of very abstract interpretive thing. But then I realized, well, this is – the, the Vertigo version. And if you want a great, uh, more classic Black Orchid listing, go to the original Who's Who, because that listing was by Terry Austin, and it's fantastic. Well, there so, you go. You're trying to do something as different as possible. Yet, the, yet there, the first appearance is still Adventure Comics 428. So they are saying this is the same Black Orchid. Which is completely wrong. I mean, right. it's, it's, it, that is a complete mess up. That's in my notes too. That is not this incarnation at all. They don't even try and pretend in the, in the story. Now that story was written by, by the way, by Neil Gaiman and drawn by Dave McKean. It came out in 1988. It's the three issue miniseries. They never try and pretend that she's the same black orchid. Right. So the fact, this is just a mess up on editing um, side. Here's what that's gotta be. So, um, all right. So some of the gist of this is there's a woman named Susan Linden, and she fell in love with a gangster and ultimately got her killed. That's the short version of that. Now, Susan had a childhood friend who was a brilliant botanist, and he spliced her DNA with some plants to create this new hybrid of a plant and human uh, being. And that's how Black Orchid was created. And it goes on here about uh, all the different things she gets involved with, some retribution and things like that, um, and, and her being – her body going through a bunch of changes. Anyway, the gist of it is it, it's a very, it's a very Neil Gaiman story. It's sad. I've never actually read it. I'd be interested in reading it. It's, it sounds like a very emotional, uh, and probably beautiful journey being by Dave McKean, but it is a very, very big departure from the previous Black Orchid and is very, very steeped in, um, sort of the, the power of plants because she is very connected to uh, botanical things, whereas some of the previous Black Orchids were not. 
She has uh, powers like flight. She's super strong. She's resilient. And, and as we mentioned, she's a plant and human hybrid. Did you read that many series by chance? Uh, I think I got the first issue. And I, I will say, uh, even though I do, like I just said, I like Dave McKeon's work. I find him as a sequential storyteller to be a little bit of a grind. So I think I, I don't think I continued on with it. Well, it was 1988. I mean, it was still early days for Dave McKean to become who Dave McKean would become. So I, it, it may not have been, you know, some of his rough stuff too. So at this point, you know, um, you've got uh, – this one entry is written by Mark Wade. Uh, by the way, the border is surprisingly purple. And uh, first appearance does, as, as Rob indicated, is not quite the right one. But uh, if you want more on Black Orchid, you know, you can check out uh, Batman Brave from the Bold, the cartoon. There, uh, there was some appearances. Now, I don't think it was this version. I think it was the other version. And also Justice League Dark uh, has had some appearances by Black Orchid. I don't know, again, which version it was, but uh, I suspect it's probably not this one. Um, and then after, I should mention, you know, once Vertigo got rolling, there was actually a Black Orchid Vertigo series for a while. So based on this incarnation. All right, up next, Cliff Steele. Here's one everybody knows, folks, uh, from the Doom Patrol. And his entry does get the Doom Patrol treatment where you've got that uh, vertical vertical sort of white, uh, I don't know, column, if you will, and where the name Cliff Steele is in there. And uh, it's just a – I love this image. I think, uh, I, I think that Richard Case absolutely killed it. You've got the very modern – version of uh, Cliff Steele. I'm trying not to say Robot Man because he doesn't go by Robot Man at this point. Anyway, very modern Doom Patrol version, uh, uh, Grant Morrison version. So he's got, you know, the the giant shoulder pads and the big brawny arms with giant bolt holes and stuff like that and the, the shit kicker boots and he just looks totally cool. And he's sitting there holding in a very Macbeth sort of way one of the old Robot Man heads from his previous bodies and littered around the ground all around him are all these various parts, arms, and heads of various Robot Man robot man bodies in fact one of them the one in the very forefront's even got the number 82 stamped on it so you're like oh my gosh how many of these things are there i, I i'm i'm looking i'm trying to see where the like the joe staten version is got it got to be in there somewhere right i would think but oh well yeah i'm sure it is yeah so um they do uh, i should ask what do you think of the entry i'm sorry the artwork i think it's great i i think it's it tells a story uh and it gives you some understanding of the character you know that he's contemplating his humanity um, you know, while he's laying or standing amid, you know, the the 500 versions of his body that have existed to this point, so I think it's it's a really clever image. It almost sort of hints uh, climbing from the wreckage, crawling from the wreckage, if you will. Right. So, yep. uh, very industrial too. Uh, there's all this uh, machinery works in the background. Looks absolutely. I mean, just Richard Case killed this man. It's so so good. All right. So they talk about how he was did used to go by the name Robot Man. Absolutely. And he was. I'm not going to talk a lot about this because I mean he's pretty well known. I think at this point, you know, race car driver had a horrible accident. Um, gets put his brain put into the body of a, a robot. Gets recruited by the chief to join the Doom Patrol. And, and really, in the Graham Morrison era especially, he is the point-of-view character. All this insanity is going on around you in the Doom Patrol book, and Cliff's job is to look at the camera basically and say, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and that's really his job in the Graham Morrison era is to be our voice in the book. And he does a, and he can't help but like the guy because of it. I mean, he's when I was reading Doom Patrol, he was my favorite character because he's the one guy I could relate to. So you feel a good connection with him. Um, now – Outside, I, mean, I know you didn't read the Morrison stuff. Did you have a connection with this character at all in previous incarnations of Doom Patrol or anything? Any particular iteration that jumped out of any of the Teen Titans stuff or anything? I mean, I always liked the character. I always liked the Doom Patrol. Uh, obviously, all the versions of the Doom Patrol were just leading up to the, the, the ultimate, which is the John Byrne version. Of the Absolutely. Doom Everyone agrees on that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, no, no, no. I always like 
<laughs> that was just for the guys. Uh, no, I, Paul, I, Paul just Paul's hair just went white. Fly <laughs> me. Um, so I, I know that's London. Anyway, whatever. Uh, no, I like this a lot. I didn't really read the the Grant Morrison Doom Troll very much. It was very popular at the time when I was out. When I was at school, it was a lot of people were reading it. I just it didn't really do much for me. But nevertheless, uh, I think it's a obviously it's a very very iconic and long-lasting take on the characters because that's basically what the TV show is. Is, 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 the, is the Grant Morrison Doom Patrol, not the, you know, not the My Greatest Adventure Doom Patrol. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, who would think that, you know, we're, of this book that we're going through, this dark fantasy realms and stuff, the, the most popular characters are, you know, Seems pretty obvious. Swamp Thing is the, is the most popular. But then John Constantine's pretty darn popular. I mean, he's had movies and TV shows too. And Cliff Steele from the Doom Patrol. I mean, how interesting is it that they've broken through? So, wow. I will say one just other thing about that. I was, I was leafing through the uh, iconic uh, 1982 DC style guide, which mm-hmm. everyone knows featuring all the artwork by JLGL, PVHN. <laughs> and uh, there's, a, there's a page on it which features uh, color swatches of all the different characters that basically, you know, like this is the Superman red, this is the Batman blue, this is the Aquaman orange, yada, yada, yada. And it, it has uh, all these portraits, not portraits, excuse me, full body shots of uh, about three dozen of the most iconic, most famous DC characters, uh, all standing in a line showing you that, oh, where the greens go with, you know, so you can, you all know the, you know, the usual suspects, Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Green Lantern, the Teen Titans. But in, in that little drawing is Robot Man from the Doom Patrol. He's the only member of the Doom Patrol that's there. And it was just now, I, I imagine it had to have been because he had just appeared in New Teen Titans and New Teen Titans was a popular book, but I just thought it was funny that Robot Man makes the DC style guide book. Really? That's kind of amazing. You know, folks, happy Halloween. Your gift from the Fire and Water Podcast Network to you at home is getting to hear twice Rob refer to him as Robot Man. That's, uh, I like everyone, saying it like that. I know. Everybody loves that. I, I think another reason probably they use him is because he's orange. I mean, there's just not a lot of DC characters that are pure orange, you know, that, so. if, if they're demonstrating colors. But yeah, probably. So, um, at this point, Doom Patrol was on issue number 50, you know, big important issue there, but they hadn't really revealed yet, and sorry, this is a spoiler, folks, at least for the comic books, that Chief is actually the bad guy, uh, that he, uh, I, maybe you don't even know this, Rob, I don't know, but they in the Grand Morrison run towards the end, they revealed that the Chief had actually arranged all of the accidents for Larry Trainer, oh, the negative man, Cliff Steele, oh, uh, Rita Farr, he arranged all that crap. Um, I never heard that, no. It's Horrid. I have no idea where that may have gone since then. I mean, I, he's, I know he's been redeemed in comics and maybe not. I don't know. You never know how things go. But, uh, yeah, so they actually revealed that. So, um, very disturbing. Hmm. And, uh, anyway, in this case, the border is red for hero and the writer on the century is Mark Wade. And first appearance is My Greatest Adventure number 80, which is from June 1963, which is also the first appearance of the Doom Patrol. Very interesting how much it, uh, aligns with the same time as the X-Men premiere. So, by the way, and if you want more on Cliff Steele and Doom Patrol, you should check out, obviously, the TV show, Doom Patrol. Uh, a recent episode of Justice League International Blahaha podcast, myself and Mike Garvey went through one of, uh, Grant Morrison's more fan, wonderful storylines, called the, the painting that ate Paris. We discussed that on our podcast about uh, the Doom Patrol and how it intersected with the JLI. And uh, there's also a podcast called Waiting for Doom that Paul Hicks has been desperately waiting for me to say. He's afraid I was going to forget. So, yes, check that out where they go through all the iterations of Doom Patrol and explore all this stuff in great, great depth. So, all right, let's move on. 
Up next is Danny the Street. Oh, my gosh. This thing is crazy. So it's by Tom Taggart, and we've seen him before. He did – I think it was The Patchwork Man. Yes. yes. And it was a, a multimedia sort of uh, diorama, if you will, on that one. This one's definitely a diorama of sorts. He has basically built the city – unless I'm mistaken here, I think. He has built this probably little city street out of balsa wood or something and drawn and painted on and built signs. of. He has built Danny the Street, folks, and took a photo of it. Am I, am I describing that fair? Yeah, it's a three-dimensional model. I hope this yep. thing still exists somewhere. Oh my gosh! So it's it's in it's in now the the one he's chiving us here is in black and white with a yellow logo for Danny the Street, which looks a little bit like a street sign. And you've got stores like Guns R Us. The you've got a, uh, a theater called Peeping Tom's with the Perpetual Cabaret. You've got the Army Navy store. Uh, you've got Knife World. So if you're noticing a trend there with guns and knives and army and stuff like that, that comes into play in just a minute here. Because there's also lots of like hearts and lace and frilly uh, sort of um, streamers and stuff that are here and lots of pretty plants. Because Danny the Street is sentient. So this road is actually sentient. And it's also a transvestite. And that's the I kept scratching my head going, how is a road a transvestite? I don't get that. And that's what they're talking about because there are things like gun shops and knife shops and Army Navy, but it's all dressed up with – well, this is black and white, but it's dressed up in, normally in pink and lace and flowers and hearts. So it's very macho – stores dressed up in very frilly what would normally be defined as at least in a feminine sort of a, a, uh, decorations. So they consider himself a transvestite. Now, if you're not familiar with Danny the Street, Rob, this thing's going to blow your mind. So it is a mobile street. This street actually moves. Like in the middle of the night, it will transport itself from wherever it is to another city. It'll find a way to sort of wedge itself in to uh, into a city block, and it just lives there in that city. And people come and live there and roam and do different things. It warps space to do this, and it becomes part of sort of the fabric of that other city. And uh, it and it goes from place to place. It travels around. And it, at this point in history, it, it typically returned to uh, Sarah Furness, which was a, a writer and a good friend of Dane of the Streets at that point. And unfortunately, the men from nowhere, who we'll talk about a little bit later, come to attack. And the Doom Patrol defend Sarah. And so the Doom Patrol befriends Danny the Street. And Danny the Street becomes the headquarters of the Doom Patrol. So as it moves around, the Doom Patrol sort of goes with it. So they, the Doom Patrol now have a mobile headquarters, which goes where it needs it to. And Danny himself communicates, or I shouldn't say he, but Danny communicates by forming words on signs or like in smoke coming out of a manhole cover and things like that. That's how Danny communicates. This thing is an absolute head trip. And the images on the back are just totally awesome. There's a fantastic, it shows the front of a gun shop, right? And you see all these guns. It's just 25% off, but they're all on like frilly lace and doilies and hearts and stuff like that. And there's like a, a have a nice day sign. And then Tom has built a little robot man, like homemade Mego. He's kit yeah, It's like Mi- a little Mego Doom Patrol. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fantastic. Oh, man. So what do you, this has got to be like, oh, by the way, the, I got to mention the, the category. It's green for geography, but it's, it's listed as sentient geography. I love that. So what do you think of this insanity, man? It's fine. I'd heard of Danny the Street before this, and I had actually met Tom Taggart at a convention at one point, and we talked about his work and stuff like that. So I was familiar with this. Uh, I like it. I am confident in saying that this is the only time in Who's Who that you will have a uh, base of operations uh, be the uh, base of operations for the character that just preceded it in Who's Who. Because Cliff Steele's base of operations in the previous listing is Danny the Street. That's true. Here, okay. Here's Danny the Street. So there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fun idea and I like that, uh, they let, 
you know, they did a three-dimensional piece and they photographed it. I don't know why it's in black and white, but maybe the Waiting for Doom guys can explain that or something. But other than that, I think it's great and it's funny. And I will say, having to put sentient geography as the border, to me, just underscores why this whole notion of borders were silly. Oh, my gosh. No, they did that to celebrate it and be fun. Oh, you're such a pain. Okay. So I uh, oh oh you oh you just made me think of something. Now I got to talk about it. Anyway, uh, before we leave Dana this year, I will say this is absolutely charming. Charming is the word for this entry. It is wonderful. It's joyous. I remember when I read Doom Patrol. Yes, Cliff Steele was my um, was my entry point and my POV. But I love Danny. I every time Danny showed up, I was so excited. I absolutely love this character. So the borders, I just completely forgot. In my Who's Who binders, I actually, I, what I would do, alphabetizing, I'd alphabetize everything by people's, either the superhero name or their last name. So if it was like, um, I don't know. Uh, Lois Lane. Cliff, Cliff, uh, Lois Lane would be under Lane, not Lois. Anyway, so uh, also what I did was, because I was so enamored with them, I had two sections with uh, little dividers in the back just for Vertigo characters. And, uh, and then I had, and I called it Vertigo, so I must have done that after 93. And then I had another section for Legion of Superheroes, but I actually had all my Vertigo stuff together, so it was very easy to go through and find them all for this, uh, for this episode. So it was nice. All right, let's move on to the Doom Patrol. Here we go. So this is the same as the cover. The coloring's slightly different. I think the coloring here is a lot better, actually. So you've got Cliff Steele, who's looking all tough, and he's got his industrial strength shirt on with his giant shoulder pads and everything. You've got the chief in the foreground, who's uh, clearly sitting in his chair. You've got uh, Crazy Jane, or Jane is probably the, the nicer thing to say. She's sort of got her head tilted to try and look weird. You've got Dorothy Spinner, who's, uh, I assume, praying. And she's got either a very intense look or smile. I'm not quite sure. You've got Rebus, who uh, is pointing at Cliff Steele or something. You've got Rhea Jones in the background, and you've got um, uh, uh, Josh Clay. I I keep trying to call him Tempest. Uh, You've got Josh Clay in the background sort of peeking around the corner of Rhea Jones. And it's got the Doom Patrol treatment with the vertical white box and the Doom Patrol logo there. Um, So what, by the way, it's probably Richard Case if I hadn't said that. And you've got some uh, little clocks and pressure gauges back there too. So what do you think of this one, man? I mean, I think, I think it's good. I mean, I, I'm not, I, the design of it is, there's not really any design. It's just kind of all the characters smooshed together. Uh, I maybe wish it had been a little more of a sort of a cohesive, either have them all separated or put them together like they are all standing in the same place. But this is just kind of like a collage almost, which just doesn't do a whole lot for me. But as we've already talked about, I like the design conceit that Richard Case came up with that everyone gets this banner strolling down. And I wish they had maybe done that for all the teams in some way coming up with some visual motif to, you know, to group together the Teen Titans or the Justice League or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's neat. Uh, but, yeah, otherwise, you know, it's cool. I mean, I, like I said, I've never read any of these comics, uh, but obviously it's, a you know, one of the more popular reinventions of these characters because that's almost the version anybody knows now is, is this, yeah. this take. Yeah, so it's sort of like uh, Alan Moore when he re-envisioned Swamp Thing. I mean, that that version has stuck. Yeah. Regardless of what people do, it always finds its way back to that iconic, you know, incarnation. Same sort of thing with Doom Patrol. Uh, I, I love this image, especially a little bit of the time, because you didn't really see them as a team very often. Because that's not really how they operated as a team. They were all independent characters who did work together, but they were so – there's so much personalities and stories and stuff going on. They didn't ever, like, we're the Doom Patrol. Boom, you know, it wasn't like that. So that, it's kind of nice to see the story. Membership roll call. 
Exactly, right. And I do like there's some nice edging. Like, Rhea Jones has got this purplish uh, violet border around her, whereas Crazy Jane has, like, a lilac one. Uh, Dorothy Spinner's got a gray sort of uh, – or a stroker, maybe you call it, around there. On Photoshop is what you would call it. Yeah. And um, uh, Rebus has got a green one. It just looks sharp. It makes him pop, I think. It looks nice. I do like the inset pictures quite a bit in the back because you've got at the bottom like the original Doom Patrol with a uh, robot man and, and Elastigirl and Negative Man and the Chief. And at the top, you've got the current Doom Patrol uh, and Rhea Jones' butt, by the way. But uh, and, and it's sort of, it's paralleled. Like uh, Robot Man is standing in the same pose in both. The, cl- the Chief's in the same one. Rebus is replacing uh, Negative Man in the bottom. So it's it's, it's nice parallel. I like that. So the, the entry goes into, and I'm, again, not going to spend a lot of time on it. Everyone knows the Doom Patrol is by this point. If you're listening to this podcast, you must, I'm sure. But uh, it talks about the original Doom Patrol, how they were formed, uh, how the chief brought them all together. And uh, no, he's not a Professor X ripoff, um, as, as some people might think. And then uh, talks about how they all died when General Immortus blew them up, so they saved that small town. Then how the new Doom Patrol was put together by Celsius. Uh, and then eventually talks about how you get to the Morrison run there. And um, it's it's a nice piece. And again, it's, it's a nice recap of the history of the Doom Patrol. And uh, it's written by Robert Greenberger. He did a nice job there. And um, Border is red for hero team. And um, at this point, Doom Patrol, as I said, was on issue number 50. Anything else before we close this one out? Uh, no, we have a lot more Doom Patrol to get to. Yes, we do. So we're going to keep going, folks. <laughs> now we get to Doom Patrol's Rogues Gallery. Okay, so this is by Simon Bisley, and they have several characters here that are displayed. We've got the Beard Hunter, Red Jack, the Scissormen, and Shadowy Mr. Evans. Now, I read Grant, Matro- Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. It has been 30 years since I've read it. I remember the existence of the Beard Hunter, and I remember the existence of the Scissormen, and I don't remember any of this other crap. And I appreciate a lot of the different things Simon Bisley has done over the years and what he can do. This doesn't do anything for me. Uh, the Beard Hunter is, is a pretty good physical form. He's, he's, he's got this red bodysuit with a skull, and he's blonde, and he's in the foreground. Um, but then the rest of it, I mean, it's just weird craziness. It's, it's, this, is, this is where we get to weirdness for weirdness sake that really bothers me. This is the stuff that I think turns people off of Doom Patrol. I, like, it, does this pique your interest at all? It doesn't pique my interest, but I actually kind of like this listing because I think Simon Bisley is letting his inner Ralph Steadman fly, uh, flag fly, where he's okay. just going, he's just going crazy. I love the inset panels on the back where you've got that, I guess, like that dog. I don't know what that, the, 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 uh, the, the dog looks like it's something from kind of, again, a combination of Ralph Steadman and, uh, that, uh, that one artist from Mad Magazine. I forget, I forget his name. And it's like he's stretching across the three panels. Uh, I mean, it, and then the uh, Doom Patrol Rogues Gallery typeface is absurdly small. I mean, it's almost like a parody of these typefaces of like the logo is literally like like six point type just stuck up in the corner. So it's it is purposely very very bizarre. It's an arresting image. It's again, there's no real design. It's just a giant mess. Uh, it feels like it's you know supposed to be representing kind of madness, which I think is is good. And I like the artwork. I like Bisley's artwork. But it, but I mean, again, if if you're someone who's never read Doom Patrol, is this going to make you want to read it? Probably not. Yeah. So the entry for the Beard Hunter, this is written by Mark Wade, by the way, is actually really clever. It's very funny. It, it you know it's a well toned and extremely well oiled. Ernest Franklin spent his days in his bedroom pawing over wrestling magazines, but by night, a hair's breadth from insanity, he prowled the streets. You know, it's it's, it's got a great flavor to it. The Beard Entry. A beard hunter part of this entry, so it's a lot of fun. The Scissor Men are very well recalled. Uh, they were part of the Crawling from the Wreckage storyline, which was the big sort of Graham Morrison launching point. The other ones, uh, 
just don't stick with me. So I, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. The, the, my issue here is if this is Doom Patrol's Rogue Gallery, it's sort of disappointing to me that it doesn't cover any of the Rogue's Gallery prior to Grant Morrison taking over. Um, I feel like it should. You know, I, I know the Brotherhood of Dada, which is another Grant Morrison one, had its own entry. Um, but there, there's, you know, General Immortus could have been in here or, you know, any, any of the other ones. Mr. Um, Mala. Yeah, exactly. I, I know they were probably featured in, I don't know, with the Brotherhood of whatever they call them. Brother, the new Brotherhood brother. of Evil. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, but Society of Sin, I'm sorry, is what it was called at this point. But anyway, it, it just doesn't thrill me. I'd be interested to hear what Paul and, and, uh, Mike think about this entry. Maybe they love it. It's quite possible. And maybe I'm just out of line. So. Um, borders black for villains, and uh, it does give you the first appearance of each one of the characters listed in there. You know, Doom Patrol forty-five for the Beard Hunter, so he was pretty recent. Red Jack goes back to Doom Patrol number twenty-two, uh, and Scissorman is number twenty. Now, Crawling from the Wreckage started with issue number nineteen. And then you get Shadowy Mister Evans number forty-seven, which is also at this point very, very recent. All right, now we are going to move on to the Dreaming. So this is drawn by Mike Dringenberg. I can, it's, I, I'm sorry if I mispronounce that name. I really try. I really do. It's kind of a map. It's really interesting the way he's done it. I mean, you've got the compass rose. You've got sort of uh, indicators of where certain things are. Uh, I, I really like this entry. It's also got some weird sort of, I, I assume that's statted in the clock and the statue in the background. I, I think those are stats. Um, so I don't know. What do, you, what do you think of this one, man? Um, it's fine. Like I said, you know, I can remember when I saw it, I didn't understand any of it. And it's kind of was like, um, okay. You know, whatever. I mean, I have a better understanding of it now since I have read Sandman since then. Um, but otherwise it's, it's a, it's an okay image. I mean, it certainly is suggesting the weird, uh, contourless world of the, of, you know, dreamland. So it makes sense. I like the ocean, how it looks like a, almost like someone folded up a map. So rather than just smooth water, it looks like it's got folds and crinkles and stuff mm-hmm. in it. So I think that looks really cool. Uh, it's referred to as Oceanus Incognita. So it's nice. So um, the, the Dreaming is a place. Uh, it's geography for Green Border here. And it does get a created by credit, created by Neil Gaiman, Mike Dringenberg, and Sam Keith. And essentially, uh, and I'm going to steal some of their words here, it is a realm comprising tales and nightmares woven on the fragile loom of sleeping minds. And what that means is it's when you go to sleep, you go to the Dreaming. But at the same, so the dreaming is a, a place in a, you know, in the sleep dimension or if you will, whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, when you dream, you're creating parts of it. So there's a lot of the dreaming is, is created by people as they dream and just vanishes when the dream's over. But there are certain places that are constant. For example, um, Morpheus or Sandman, whatever you want to call him, his palace is, is part of the dreaming. The House of Mystery and the House of Secrets, which are, of course, by run, and Cain, run by Cain and Abel, is permanent. The Fiddler's Green is a permanent piece of geography. The Gates of Horn and the Gates of Ivory are both there. The Cave of Eve, which is known as the uh, Raven Woman's there. And you've got other residents like Lucian. The, the entry talks about Lucian, who works for uh, Morpheus. You've got uh, Matthew the Raven, who works for Morpheus as well. And uh, what they talk about is the Dreaming as, as a location um, was where you know, he, he – operates it's where sam in his realm but when he got kidnapped by uh, a crazy dude back in like i don't know the 1930s or something like that he was trapped there for 70 years and during those 70 years the dreaming did fall into disrepair and that's what the first few storylines of the sam a comic are about is him trying to get his items of power back and him trying to put the dreaming back in order that's where you get to all that stuff with the brute and glob and all that and the corinthian and all those story points and uh, it really made for very very compelling reading especially those early stories when it was still borderline horror and borderline fantasy uh, made a really uh, him putting the the kingdom back together i always thought it was very very interesting so first appearance is sam in number two 
uh, in May 1989. Anything else before we move on? No, let's go on to The Endless. So this one is another piece by Mike Dringenberg, and this shows the uh, six members of The Endless that are known, because there is a seventh one that's unknown at this point, and they are sort of in a shadowy background. There is uh, Dream there over on the right, and you've got Death there as well. You've got uh, Delirium, and you've got Desire, and Despair, and Destiny, and then a dog uh, who Delirium has brought to the party, because she's just weird. Um, what do you, and, and by the way, the logo is like someone cut out. So it's a font as far as the endless, but someone's like cut it out of newspaper and glued it up there, which looks really nice. So what do you think of this image? It's an, it's a nice piece, but it kind of reminds me of the album covers you would have seen in like the mid eighties, English electronic bands, you know, just as a look to it, it's like the endless architecture and morality or something like that. (laughs) They just look like that kind of band, but otherwise it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice image, and of course, you know, um, it's kind of fun that all these are new characters except for Destiny, right. which was an old DC character, which I, I kind of like that. You know, Neil Gaiman felt very free to graft in, you know, parts of the DCU into this world, so that was fun. Well, and, and you're right. The, the, as far as album covers goes, you, you kind of hit that on the head because you know they're all white and gothy looking, <laughs> and they all look, have that disinterest look on their face. You know, so like very much like a band cover. Now they would go on to produce an endless poster, and I can't remember. I think it was by I can't remember if it was by Bacalo or it was by Dringenberg, but um, I had that thing hanging on my wall for years. It's very similar to this. Um, I don't know any other way to say it, but it's very similar, but much better. <laughs> it was, you know, this is still early days as far as uh, Dream Bird's art style with Sandman. And uh, by then, it, it, again, whether it was Bacalo or, or, or Dream Bird, I can't remember, but it just it evolved quite a bit by the time they did this poster. It was a very iconic poster. Uh, you guys have probably seen pictures of it at various places. I want to say, I think, didn't the girl Roseanne have a Sandman poster on her wall, maybe? Yes, she did. You're right. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah uh, Darlene. Yeah. yeah, I think she had the endless poster that we're talking about. So yeah. anyway, so the the deal here is there's seven beings, right? And they are um, they're not living creatures; they're conceptual entities. If you've never read Sandman, uh, and this is for you, Ange, because I know you can't stand Sandman, um, which isn't true. He just thinks it's overrated. Anyway, they are ideas in flesh form. So they're not exactly gods; they're more concepts. Because if they were gods, they would cease to exist when the worshippers stop. These beings will keep going until the end of the universe. At least death will. And so um, they, 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 seven of them represent different things. One of them, again, remains a mystery at this point. And mortals perceive the endless according to their own cultural background. And that's one of the things I love because in, like, the Justice League uh, International Connection, so there was an issue with Sandman where Sandman goes to the Justice League Embassy, and there he meets Martian Manhunter. Well, Martian Manhunter doesn't see Morpheus as the goth that we all see him. He sees him as this giant flaming skull and because that's on Mars. That's how they were, That's how they viewed the, the Lord of the Dreaming was this flaming skull. And so that's what Morpheus, that's, that's what Martian Manhunter sees. So whoever you like, cats see Morpheus as a cat, things like that. So that's a really interesting aspect of it. And I'm glad you mentioned about the uh, connection to the DC universe, because yes, Destiny uh, premiered as a horror host comic book, you know, and then early on, Neil Gaiman, you know, he, he took the Jack Kirby, um, Sandman, you know, that book and, and rolled with Brute and Glob and rolled it into his mythos. So it's just a really neat stuff the way they did here. And uh, so let's see, Destiny is, is the oldest. He's chained to a book. That's his, his sigil. Uh, and he, he, uh, his book contains everything that's ever happened. And his realm, each one has their own realm. His realm is a garden. And he walks through the, uh, with, through the realm with people. And uh, as they walk through the garden, they sort of experience their life. Death is this young goth girl. Her sigil is an ankh. And she visits every single person as they die. And uh, that, 
man, issue number eight of Sandman. If you've never read Sandman, just read issue number eight, The Introduction of Death. It is so good. And one of my favorite lines in that one is in that book where she says uh, she goes to a baby who dies, and the baby whose soul can can speak and says, "You know why? Why I'm only a day old? Why are you taking me now?" And she goes, "You get the same as everyone. You get it. You get a lifetime." And uh, it, that, that's always stuck with me. Always, I've got it on a T-shirt. It always meant something to me. So it just makes a lot of sense. Anyway, so she visits everyone as they die, and she will be there at the end of the universe. She says her job is to lock up the place and turn off the lights as she leaves. So hmm. then you've got Dream, who's Morpheus or Sandman. Uh, then you've got a third mystery brother who they uh, they at this point they had not been in contact with for centuries. And uh, I'm not going to spoil it in case you guys are reading Sam at this point. Then you've got Desire, who appears as both male and female. And she's pretty much every – or I say, I say she, but Desire is every being's object of desire. It's just sex in a package there. You just can't resist it. Despair is, uh, is this person who's all curled up and sort of horrific looking and is miserable. And an interesting thing about her realm is that it's all windows on her side of it. But in our world, it's represented by mirrors. So when you look in the mirror – and you don't like what you see, uh, you're seeing despair, which is kind of a really – I thought that was really clever on your game as a part there. And then Delirium, who before becoming Delirium had been Delight. She's mentally and emotionally disturbed. Now, each one of these characters uh, have a realm uh, – have a gallery in their realms where they can call upon their other siblings. And the writer here is Peter Sanderson. I mean that must have been a mountain to climb for him. Poor Peter Sanderson has to pick up the first 34 issues of Sandman because that's where they were. It was on issue 34 and figure out how the hell he's going to describe these creatures and beings uh, without Neil Gaiman's you know, pen. That had to be challenging. And um, this is, uh, of course, uh, you know, um, purple for Supernatural. And uh, at this point, as I said, Sandman number 34, that is in the middle of the A Game of You storyline. All right, up next, oh, goody, we're back in the Doom Patrol. Uh, it's Flex Metallo, uh, or Mentallo, sorry, Hero of the Beach, <laughs> drawn by Ken Stesey. And uh, this character is, without a doubt, a tribute to the Charles Atlas comic book ads. I mean, they're, they're, they don't even try to hide it. And here you've got this giant muscle-bound Charles Atlas-looking guy, and he's on the beach in a very, you know, just like those Charles Atlas ads. And you see the girls there in the bikinis and the guys and the sand and all that jazz. And he's flexing his muscles, and above him it appears, Hero of the Beach! And one of the girls is going, sigh. You should probably learn that from Rob Kelly. Sigh. It's Flex Mentallo. So, what do you think of this one, buddy? I mean, I know nothing of this character outside of this listing because uh, I've never read a comic book with him in it. Uh, but I love the artwork. I love Ken Stacy. I'm a big fan of his. I think it's fun that his name is not the sort of logo. It's Hero of the Beach. I mean, right. you say he's – I mean, yeah, and, yeah, and he is. He's a parody of the Charles Atlas. Has, but there's this sinister cast to it because he's got studded bracelets mm. and sort of like Nazi shit kicker boots sort of thing. Not the blending those two things. Nazi boots or shit kicker boots, excuse me. Uh, but he's got this, you know, curb stomper boots, let's say. Uh, so to me, I, when I saw this image, I'm like, okay, obviously it's meant to be this, uh, you know, this uh, stark, you know, divergent idea of this sort of genial muscle guy. But yet he looks like somebody that might beat your ass or something. So I don't know. And then, <laughs> then they're getting Ken Stacy to draw it. And especially I love the, 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 the two uh, tacks that he takes because – Flex Mentalo is drawn within an inch of his life with all these details and muscles, and he's got, uh, you know, um, veins popping out of his – and then the, the people in the background are drawn as simply as possible. They look like they popped right out of the Charles Atlas ad. Oh, that's – yeah, you know, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, very simple line work. And, uh, like, even the blankets just got some sort of statted in bubbles and stuff like that. Yep. And the bikinis. Yep. Oh, that's great. 
So you're going to love this, Rob. See, you, you like the Hero of the Beach logo above his head? That's actually one of his powers. He flexes, and the words Hero of the Beach appear above his head. That is actually a power. It does say the hero halo and the powers of weapons. Exactly. Exactly right. So he is the psychic manifestation of a superhero comic book story is the gist of it. Um, The the psychic powers of this young boy gave him form and substance. In fact, implanted him with false memories. Flex Metallo believed he was this hero of the 1950s and that he was, you know, a a well-known superhero, a team member, a husband, all this stuff. He believed all of this to be real. But in reality, he was created by this little kid who with, with psychic powers. And he came into existence as fully formed as far as Flex was concerned with memories, but none of it was real. So um, Flex goes through uh, troubled times, and eventually uh, what's going on here, the, the, the men from nowhere, they're coming up. We're, we're getting to them. But uh, they're, they're a group of people that are trying to make things normal, at least is the way they view it. And Flex Mental is certainly not normal. And one of the things they get their power from is the Pentagon. The actual shape of the Pentagon building is part of what powers these people. So Flex Mental is using all of his really weird-ass powers. He is, I kid you not, trying to turn the shape of the Pentagon building into a circle. That is his objective. That will break the power of the men from nowhere. Uh, yeah, it's Graham Morrison, folks. Anyway, he's super strong. He's super tough. He can read minds. He can see the future. He's got this hero halo that we talked about here at the beach and all kinds of stuff like that. It is a weird-ass character. But uh, he's, it's pretty funny, though. I mean, you can't deny just even that image alone is pretty hilarious. So it's written by Mark Wade. And Border is Red for Hero. And first appearance is Doom Patrol number 35. So he had only been around for about 15 issues at this point. Up next, movie star... TV star John Constantine, the Hellblazer. Even my wife knows who this one is. And uh, you, the artwork here is by Will Simpson, who uh, had done had drawn some of the issues of Hellblazer before this point, and will continue to draw more afterwards. You've got a picture of John in the foreground. He's he's holding a cigarette, and the smoke of the cigarette is forming, I guess, an image of sorts. It is uh, some demons fighting each other. I think it's probably the three demons of hell fighting each other. Oh, I just realized it as we're talking. That's exactly what it is. It is the three demons of hell because there's an amazing Garthina story if you've never read it. So, uh, what do you think of the image? That's good. I've, ne- you know, I, these, this is one of these characters that I've just never I've never cottoned to the way some people, a lot of people have. Obviously, he's very popular, as you said. Everyone knows who he is. He got a movie and a TV show uh, he's appeared in uh, alter other mediums and stuff. I, I just, I don't know. I, to me, a little, a little him went a long way. Uh, I, and it was funny though. The one time I did read a Hellblazer, uh, series run was, I think there was four issues in the middle of his run where he went to jail and it was drawn by Richard Corbin. And oh, those wow. are, those are excellent. And I don't, I don't know why I didn't continue on or maybe give him more of a chance, but I don't know. He's one of these guys that just never like, it seems like Lobo to me. I, I, they're not, characters are not similar but just the idea that like people are like oh man he's so awesome and i was always like "Eh, okay he's fine (laughs) he's an interesting character he works in two different ways uh for me at least He, he makes a fantastic guest star like when he shows up it's like okay this shit just got real you know, John's here. There's some crap's going to go right, down, right, right. Uh, which I love that aspect of him. And then his own ongoing series, it, for me, it, it's not I – mean, it's a very long-running comic. I mean this thing has gone on for ages. I, I, I think it's still going. I'm not sure. Uh, but if not, it was up until recently, at least a version of it. It's, a, it's, it's hard to read his series from beginning to end, at least for me, because it's not there's, – there's not a journey. It's just John continuing to go through heaps of crap. Uh, in his life. And so while I could read a good hundred issues of it, 
after a while, it starts weighing on you and you start to feel like, okay, um, more of the same is about to come around the corner. And, and, and so I, I couldn't read it continuously, but I, you know, I could do my run and then I moved on. And I, so I, maybe there's people out there that can follow it every month. But for me, it's a, I, I think it's a good thing for people to have their era, if, uh, if you will. So getting into this, um, once again, Jeffrey Lang wrote the entry. Very strange. Don't know what that's about. Hmm. Uh, so he is 5'11", 150 pounds. Rob, I know you love that. That's insane. I, well, I mean, he was modeled after Sting, and Sting uh, is very tall and very skinny. So that that I actually kind of buy for once. Okay. It's interesting. It says created by Steve Bissett, John Tolliban, Jamie Delano, John Ridgway, and Alan Moore. Alan Moore's listed last, which is interesting because he did start in Saga of the Swamp Thing. So I, I thought that was very odd. But it could also be because at this point, maybe Alan Moore said, don't give me any royalties because he was so mad at DC by this point after Watchmen. I don't know. Yeah, it's not alphabetical. So, yeah, that's odd. Yeah. So uh, at, at this point, uh, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. By this point, Hellblazer was being written by Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon. So it was on issue 49. Jimmy Delano's run had already ended. Um, and, and I'll only touch on that because one, one of the stories I'm going to talk about. But uh, there's certain things about John. I mean, he, he's a very, very powerful magic user. He is human, and he's a complete asshole. I mean, that's the things you got to know about John. John is not a likable guy. There's, you're never supposed to be 100% on board with him. You, you root for him as the protagonist, but, man, he's a jerk. So I love the idea that he was in the London punk scene of the 1970s involved with the supernatural. I would, I mean, that would be awesome to read. I would absolutely love to see some of that. And um, throughout his time of practicing magic, he's pretty much met all the major magic heroes in the DC universe. One of the notes in here and just always walk away with, he is not altruistic. He is not doing these things to help people out of the goodness of his heart. In fact, one of his earliest stories was he failed to save this girl named Astra um, and it still haunts him to this day, and it comes up a lot. Uh, in fact, it even came up in Legends of Tomorrow when he was on there. And uh, so here, here's the famous story by Garth Ennis that I love so much, which is what the image is, those three demons fighting on the cover. What the deal is, is he got lung cancer. And the way he beat it was he went to three different demons in hell and made deals with each one of them, basically saying, when I die, you can have my soul if sort of thing, made a deal with each one of them. So all three of them were entitled to his soul. He didn't tell any of them they were making these deals. So when it came time for him to die, these three demons realized, wait a minute, I'm supposed to get John's soul, and you're supposed to get John's soul, and you're supposed to get John's soul, and I can't let you have it. That would show I'm weak if I let you take it. So I'm going to have to go to war with you. So all three of these major demons are going to have to go to war with each other, which will basically rip apart hell. If John dies. So actually this deal he made, they decided to leave him alive. They, so he beat lung cancer by tricking these demons into not letting him go to hell because it would tear hell apart. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that's like, John, it's like, oh, what a bastard. I love him. So anyway, uh, and the, one of the things also you got to know about him is anytime he has good luck, that means it's going to be bad luck for somebody that's close to him. Pretty much as you read that comic on an ongoing basis, if you get attached to any characters, uh, for example, there's a, a woman here they mentioned named Kit, who was his girlfriend during my era, was Kit. Uh, anyway, something bad's going to happen. Do not get attached to people in John's life. They're going to die or get injured or treated miserably very, very badly, and it's very depressing. So, First appearance of Saga of Swamp Thing, number 37. Border is purple for Supernatural, and uh, it's, it's a great character. It's really great. I, I love him as a supporting character, and I like my era of Garth Ennis that I enjoyed. I tell you my favorite Hellblazer moment. It doesn't even really involve him that much, but it's the one. Issue, I issue number most. fifty, where they immolate uh, people. 
Or one of yeah, the that is it. Demons. I know. You talk about it all the time. <laughs> you talk, I talk about it all the time. When the oh hell is the last time I mentioned this? Listeners, you guys are really good at chronicling stuff. Please put in the comments how many times he's told the story about the three demons and Dr. Fate has had enough no, of their shit. No, no. Oh. That's not the moment. I'll oh, okay. Look all at right. you. We got a little ahead. Somebody got over his skis a little bit. That part doesn't involve Hellblazer. I'm talking about So calm the hell down, Mr. Matthews. You made your point. Tell the damn story. No, I'm going to keep dragging this out because I'm enjoying this. No, it's it's in issue 50, and they do the seance. They have all the DC magic characters, and they're all holding hands, and different demons are in in, uh, taking over the forms of some of the some of the characters and bl- and killing them. And they're like falling over dead while they still have to hold hands. And anyway, Zatanna starts feeling this fire inside of her and she knows she's about to die. And Zatara does one of his spells and basically forces that energy into himself. So he sacrifices himself for his daughter. Mm-hmm. It's a great moment. It's a beautiful moment. And his last words are to Constantine, where he's basically like, Constantine, if you harm my daughter, I will come back and kill you. <laughs> I love that. I love that this protective dad is like, look, you little shit. I may be about to die, but I will end you if you hurt my daughter. I just, I love that so much. That's good. That's actually really good. Because him and Zatanna were romantically involved right, at, different, right, at various right. points. Yeah. Which is sort of like all of us that like Zatanna, it just makes us mad. Again, because first of all, you know, we'd all like to, you know, have a relationship with her. But also, he's such a prick. He's like exactly. the point. He's that guy you're like, no, you can't date my friend. You're a horribly person. Exactly. So. I love that. I just love Zatara schooling John Constantine about as he's about to die. That's a badass moment. See? John Constantine as a guest star is awesome. So. Yep. All right. Let's move on. And some people say Constantine, by the way. Yes, I know. So we'll just leave it at that. Up next is, oh, I adore this entry. This is Kathy George from the Shade comic by Chris Boccolo. And, folks, uh, this entry right here is what made me go out and uh, recommend that Chris Boccolo book in the beginning. I mean, look at the artistry on this thing, Rob. She is uh, beautiful. She's sexy. She's cute. She's looking in the mirror. She's sitting there in her black jeans and black uh, leather jacket she's looking in the mirror and shade is not standing behind her because you see her backside and you see her front side in the mirror shade's not standing not standing behind her but he is in the mirror so she sees shade behind her he's like a reverse vampire right exactly and then you see all around it all these different images and i realize most of these are meaningless to you but you see the american scream back there you see john f kennedy you see uh some sheep you see this little girl you see this uh demon who represents the guy who murdered her parents you see all kinds of other stuff some of the stuff i don't even remember because i have any uh, i'm only a couple issues in my reread there's also their friend they travel with um so it's what do you think of this as far as artistically Oh, I love Chris Bachelot. I didn't mention anything when you did the, the, the inside trades listing, but I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's a great artist and he did, he really did manage to draw women that are both sexy and cute, which is uh, not easy to do. Some, you know, sometimes you lean over and you just do nothing but like sultry TNA or not sexy, but cute. But she really, I mean, this Kathy George, if you saw her in real life, everybody would be like, Oh my God, she's so adorable. Yeah. That's so, the word, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I have no idea what any of this stuff means. I mean, now I have some idea. Thanks to the JFK thing is your explanation, but it's a great piece. I love the way he, and he fills the pay. I mean, it's like a collage, but yet you feel like maybe all the images are there at least sort of, uh, you know, ab- in a sort of abstract kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look at the minimalism of her face. I mean, she's, she's got a smirk, lines, yeah. which makes her beautiful. And it's so, I mean, it's, it's almost like an Alex Toth sort of like barely any lines, but yep. 
damn, we conveyed it. So yeah, yeah he nailed it. So, um, all right. Also the entry is exceptionally well-written. I don't know if you took the time to actually read this thing, but it tells a story. Mark Wade just really knocked this out of the park, tells the story about how her parents were murdered moments before she got home. Basically she, she's, she's going to Louisiana to go see her parents. She hasn't seen them in a while. She's bringing her new boyfriend with her. Who's this black man, um, her boyfriend and they get to the house and her parents, and she's late by the way, she, they're late getting there because they stopped and had sex in a field. Uh, and so they're like a half a day late. If they had gotten there on time, maybe they would have been, she could have got there in time to save her parents, but she didn't. She walks in the door and her parents have just been murdered by this guy. Um, and the cops show up and of course they're in Louisiana, they're in the South. And unfortunately the cops mistake what's going on. So they shoot her boyfriend, the black guy. So her parents are murdered and her boyfriend are murdered all at the same moment. And it's horrific. And she goes insane. She just loses it as I think anybody would if this were to happen right in front of them. And uh, the, the the guy who killed her parents is a serial killer. He is arrested and, and put in jail. So she spends the next three years uh, in an insane asylum. Or san- they say sanitarium, sorry. Um, and she's there. She, basically, she's feeling so guilty because, if she, again, if she, if she hadn't decided to come south with her boyfriend, he wouldn't have got killed. If she had gotten to her parents' house earlier, maybe they wouldn't have died. So she's feeling very guilty. Eventually – she eventually her parents' money runs out, so they release her. She's not because she's cured, but because they don't have any more money. And so she's trying to figure out what to do. The man who killed her parents is about to be executed in the electric chair. So she goes to, to outside the place to be there when they execute him, sort of, you know, therapeutic sort of thing. And uh when the moment he is in the electric chair to get killed, Shade, this guy from the other dimension we've been talking about from Meta, his spirit inhabits the body the same minute the guy dies because basically the guy's leaving the body. Shade needs a body, so he's inhabiting the body as the guy dies. Well, it's in an electric, freaking electric chair, unfortunately. And he ends up getting away, ends up connecting with Kathy, takes a while to convince her that he's not the serial killer anymore. And now Shade and Kathy are traveling around America battling the American screen. Uh, they talk about in here how she's an alcoholic. Kathy uh, drowns her sorrows, and at this point, she has finally uh, recognized she has a problem with drinking, and she's trying to uh, get over her emotional scars so she can break that habit. So, um, what you think? What, what do I think about what? The, well, just her story. It's just it's it really just wowed me. Again, a lot of it's Mark Waite's writing and everything, and it's just really, really, really powerful. I think. It, you know, I've heard a lot of good things about Shady Changing Man, and I've read a few issues here and there, sort of accidentally. We can I've already probably detailed how that happened. But, uh, yeah, I, I probably should get into this at some point because it looks really interesting. I like the artwork a lot. It's. I will tell you, I started reading, as again, I started reading it last night. The first few issues, artwork is, it's not Chris Boccolo like you're used to. I mean, he's still learning. Um, I would say Chris Boccolo becomes who he is as an artist while he's on this book. So, uh, you know, if you start the first couple issues and you're not seeing this level artwork, don't be disappointed. Hang around because you can see him very quickly develop. So, all right. Uh, absolutely adore this. So written again by Mark Wade. Border is blue for sporting cast and uh, first appearance, Shade the Changing Man, number one. So, all right. Up next is Kid Eternity. So uh, that's me shooting a bird again by Duncan Figueredo. Uh, wow. I mean, he just kills it. So this is from the Grant Morrison reimagining. Uh, Kid Eternity, he's all white except for a red belt. And he's got his, his little circle, like a uh, dark John Lennon kind of sunglasses. I guess they're bigger than that. They're more like 90s, you know, alternate dude sun, uh, sunglasses, white hair. And he's holding up like a, it looks like a, almost like a minesweeper mine or something like that. It's probably a chaos mine of some sort. And you see all these engine parts, cogs behind him. Uh, what do you think of this piece, man? I think it's great. I'm a fan of Duncan Fergredo. I think it's a great piece. Uh, I will say this whole, 
like mixed media collage thing. There's so many of these listings that have that look. They do start to kind of blend together a little bit mm, after fair. a while. It's like you got Dave McKeon doing it and you have Richard Case doing it and you even have Chris Bachelot doing it. And after a while, it gets a little like, oh, okay, maybe it wasn't the greatest idea to put all the verticos together. <laughs> um, but this one pops because obviously the color values are so different. You've got this, bl- you know, totally white again, as you said, except the red belt could eternity popping off the background. So it's, it's really cool. And I, you know, you could, if you know enough about kid eternity, you can sort of see the connection of, Oh, this is the, all right, this is the same basic concept as the one that first appeared in hit comics, which is credited here on the back, but obviously it's a completely new take on it. So yeah, I think it's one of, it's one of my favorite listings uh, in the, well, maybe not listing favorite artwork in the book. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. So it's interesting. It's, it's, it's not a reimagining of Kid Attorney. It's more of a retconning of Kid Attorney, really. Because what they're, they're saying, the basic origin is still the same. The one that you and I covered on the recent episode of Secret Origins, it still stands. You know, he was a young boy in World War II who was on a boat with his grandfather, and the boat got shot by, you know, these really asshole bloodthirsty nazis who shot it up and killed everyone he goes to heaven and turns out he's not supposed to be dead so they return him to earth with this heavenly power and a guardian angel named mr keeper and so they're saying all of that still happened but then they say that's what happened but not exactly the way kid eternity thought happened but what they're saying is he didn't really go to heaven he went to the lord the realm of the lords of chaos now everything involving the lords of order and chaos that we've read at this point up to this point in dc has been the lords of order are the good guys and lords of chaos are bad guys well this series tries to tell you something different this series tries to say it's not an easy clean cut thing what they're trying to say is order expects the universe to operate one way and chaos wants the universe to operate a different way. It's not that it's bad. It's just, they want the universe to be a little more different. And so um, the, the Lords of chaos are kind of the good guys here. They're fighting against the oppression of the Lords of order. And so what's happened here is the kid eternity and the keeper have spent the last 30 years or so, um, or they spent, sorry, they spent 20 years on earth doing everything that they did in the old hit comics. And then they got trapped and spent 30 years in hell. And uh, basically there was the the allies of the Lords of Order trapped them in hell. So then they get out, and that's where the Graham Morrison series starts, kicks off. And you've got the Kid and the Keeper, and the Keeper, by the way, is an agent of of the Chaos as well. And they're out protecting, um, trying to protect the world in their own way. And they're trying to protect this human couple whose kids apparently are going to triumph over the Lords of Order. It will ensure the next step in humanity's evolution. Now, the Lords of Order don't want humanity to evolve. They want everything to stay the same. But Chaos wants humanity to evolve because it wants change and differences. So you can see why Chaos could be a force for good in this case. And uh, it, I mean, it's trippy, dude. It's, it's crazy artwork. It's crazy writing. But boy, did it hit all the right buttons when I was in my dark, 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 gothity goth. Or wasn't a goth, but my dark, dark, darkity dark phase. So um, anyway. I, I, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say his powers. You know, he says the word eternity, which allows him to travel any place he wants. And he can also call forth. Uh, he thought he was calling people from various parts of history. Like, you know, Ben Franklin would come up and he'd say eternity and help him out. But really what he was calling forth were these various demons that were in the form of those people. Those are immense powers that get one sentence. Right. Exactly. <laughs> a, I mean, that's a really amazing series of powers. And they're just like, oh, yeah, he can do this. And go anywhere and do anything and summon anyone. Thank you. Like, okay, <laughs> wow. All right. 
Um, written here by Mark Wade, the border is purple for Supernatural. First appearance is Hit Comics number 25 from December 1942. Now, the miniseries was three issues, and it finished in June 1991, so about six months before this. And there will go on to be a Kid Eternity ongoing series, which tries to kind of distance itself from the Grant Morrison series to some extent. But I'm interested in uh, rereading. I didn't, it didn't click with me in the old days. But now looking, I'm like, oh, wait, it's written by Anne Nascenti with art by Sean Phillips. Um, yes, please. I'd like to see that. All right, up next is Les Perdue, which was the one entry of the book. I said, what the hell is this? I have no idea what this is. It's a Swamp Thing creature. And art here is by Bill Jaska. I think it's, it's got two A's. So I've never, I've always said Jaska, but maybe it's Jaska. And it's this purple, many, many armed creature, very demonic, giant teeth. And it is grabbing a ferret or a weasel of some sort out of the swamp. And it's about to eat it. And it's sitting up in a bog tree. Um, it's a very powerful, good horror graphic kind of image. It looks like something that, you know, maybe you'd see Kelly Jones draw or maybe even Bernie Wrightson. I think, I think it looks sharp. Uh, for what it's supposed to be, which is a horrible image, I would say it succeeds. But I don't like looking at it because I just don't like looking at that poor little beaver or what no, it's not a beaver well maybe it is a beaver uh, could be a beaver it could be a oh, could be a ferret could be ferret well, it's some swamp i mean i, I assume yeah. it was a beaver because it's a swamp i just don't like looking at this poor creature scared to me it's just a very unpleasant image again i know what it's supposed to be yeah. but i you know i'm just like eh, okay i was really surprised when i saw who the artist was because it was it's a very effectively drawn and the back stuff's very effective um i really only know bill jaska from what is quite possibly the worst well, actually, that's not true. One of the worst eras of Teen Titans, uh, or it's called the New Titans at that point, after issue 100, after Tom Grummet left, uh, he just drove the book in a combination of um, Marv Wolfman running out of ideas, and this guy's artwork just destroyed the book. I mean, it it didn't recover for a long time, and uh, his artwork is hailed as some of the worst. So seeing this artwork, I'm like, oh, wow, actually, this guy's very capable. That's interesting. So I can't, he I, I, I can't picture this guy on Teen Titans from what I'm right, seeing. Right, I know. I don't well, like, really? Him? Teen, Teen Titans? Really? I'll have to Google you some images because you'll look at it and you'll be like, this is just crap. It's so muddy. Uh, it's, it's impossible to make out it what's going on. It just seems like a bad fit stylistically. Like uh, whoever the decided to put him on there. It doesn't seem like a good idea. So uh, now he was uh, – Bill Jaska drew the annual that this creature appeared in, so he got selected to do this entry. The, just, the short version is it's, it's a Swamp Thing creature. Uh, there was this bridge in Houma, Louisiana. Uh, I guess that's how you say it. Houma, H-O-U-M. A, I mean, it's, it's the Swamp Thing headquarters. Anyway, on this bridge, there were four different murders. And all the, con, all the, con, the mixture of this, the anger, the confusion, the sorrow, the despair, the desire for revenge, all of this combined with the power of the bayou created this monster. And it's got four minds all battling each other, four victims all trying to dominate, take control. And it's out there trying to take revenge, and it kills a bunch of people. And Swamp Thing uh, eventually looks at it and says, yeah, right. he, he decides it's not necessarily inherently evil, so he lets it be there. And the story is, I mean, because it's fairly recent at this point, it's only a few, about five months ago. It really feels like this is a, an unfinished story, the way they're hinting at here in the uh, Who's Who entry. Again, I, I wasn't familiar with this character. Um, it seems like, you know, it's just a monster of the week is what it feels like to me. But it seems nice enough. I mean, again, Jeffrey Lang as the writer. How strange is that? This guy's getting a lot of work. First appearance, Swamp Thing, annual number six from 1991. And it's purple for Supernatural. 
All right, up next is Matthew the Raven. Now, this one's very interesting. I, you've got in the foreground this black raven, uh, beautifully illustrated by Kelly Jones. And in the background, you see a, a cemetery plot, and you see a, a headstone for someone named Cable, uh, not the guy from the New Mutants or the X-Force. And you see <laughs> a shadowy figure in the background, which is supposed to be the ghost of Matthew Cable, as you figure out here. Now, for a long time, I was, I was a reader of Sandman, but not of Swamp Thing, so I had no idea who Matthew Cable was. I just knew Matthew the Raven, who was a real smartass who I liked. It says in the back, created by Neil Gaiman, Sam Keith, and Mike Dringenberg, which I found very interesting that Matthew the Raven gets the credit there, but he's supposed to be Matthew Cable, so right, yeah. Green and Wright's <laughs> get some credit. Yeah, that's weird. I, God, that's, that stuff's got to be so complicated to untangle. Oh. <laughs> horribly uh, horrible to navigate anyway uh, it says base of operations so here's a mistake it says the dreamland now i guess that's not necessarily a mistake but the fact that it's capitalized dreamland implies it's a proper noun so that should be the dreaming not dreamland mm-hmm. but i'm just being a pedantic nerd so uh matthew the raven is the most trusted messenger and servant of morpheus he was formerly matthew cable which is abigail arcane's first husband uh they talk about all of this in here so i'm not going to go into it but you know they talk about how matthew cable and uh, uh abigail were together he was a cop he knew alec holland blah 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 dies a- anton arcane does all this stuff anyway in the end he gets possessed by anton arcane matthew fell into a coma and then died while he was in a dreaming state well because he died in a dreaming state he was had the opportunity then to come to the dreaming and become a permanent resident resident as a raven in the dreaming and there have been other ravens before him that were uh morpheus's assistant and i guess you sort of do a an internship as a raven and eventually you get to move on it's kind of the, the theory behind this so what you think man Oh, it's a great piece. Uh, I think it's fun that they read, you know, that uh, Neil Gaiman found a new use for Matt Cable. Uh, I love on the inset, Phantom Stranger gets a little, little appearance there. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. That's really cool. There's a nice shot of him and, and Abby, which is uh, cool. No, I, I, I dig it. I dig it a lot. Wait, where's the Phantom Stranger? Isn't that the, that's Phantom Stranger on the right, isn't it? Or is that Sandman? That's on Morpheus. The, on the, in the third piece, in the third picture? Yeah, that's gotta oh, okay. be. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah, the hair's all spiky. Okay. Yeah. I thought I knew that's Morpheus in the middle, but I thought, why would you show him again? But I guess it's you're showing him with the raven at that point. So. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, the, the, you're right, though. The the cape in the middle one looks very Kelly Jones' uh, endless Morpheus right. cape. Whereas exactly. the other one, it, it, there is sort of a hint of the Phantom Stranger, but I think you're just seeing what you want to see there, buddy. Well, that's true. <laughs> so if you want more of Matthew the Raven, of course, check out Sandman uh, and things like that. You should also check out uh, Audible, where you can get the Sandman book, right, man? Yeah, that was really good. All 39 hours of it. Oh, was it seriously? Are you, it, you're not, it, it's like 25 or something like that. Jeez. Okay, yeah. wow. Yep. All right. Uh, and by the way, we get first appearance of Matthew Cable and first appearance of Matthew the Raven listed here, which is nice. All right, up next, the men from nowhere. And if Simon Bisley drawing the Doom Patrol uh, Rose Gallery wasn't enough for you, here's another one. Um, it's got some people and some stuff. <laughs> And Did we really need this listing? I, I know that I'm not. I know that I'm not. Uh, you know, central to no, to the Doom Patrol thing. But did we? This century is so much like the other one. Yeah. Was, was this really necessary? We, we, we need the men from nowhere. That's important. But we okay. don't need. Right. We don't okay. need this. In fact, I, I do love that. There's there's these apes on the front here, and there's apes on the back, and then they're describing to say the real men from nowhere physically resemble animal skulls atop baggy cloaks. They look nothing like the apes pictured here. It actually says that in the text. It's almost like Mark Wade decided, you know what? I don't know what the hell Bisley's doing. I'm just going to you know, write what I need to write. And I do like <laughs> Mark Wade signed his name uh, in uh, W period, A period, I period, D period, because men from nowhere, it's it, the, the periods are out there for the word nowhere because it's an acronym. 
cute. So um, is, this is very, very confusing in a Grant Morrison kind of way. There are the real men from nowhere, and there's the imitation men from nowhere. And both were dedicated to the – and this is the part that's interesting. Both were dedicated to the extermination of eccentricity and abnormality. So they're trying to reinforce what they perceive to be rational behavior. And they, they're trying to enforce their own version of reality and morals and things like that. So that's sort of interesting where the men from nowhere come in in here. Um, it, it's, it's a very convoluted piece the way it's written here because they hadn't been around that long. They'd only been around for 15 issues. So there's a lot of this happened and then this happened and this happened. But you need to know that uh, they were actively chasing Flex Mentallo. They were actively chasing Danny the Street and Dorothy Spinner. Um, so ultimately, though, the, uh, the Doom Patrol thankfully defeated them, both the imitation men from nowhere and then the real men from nowhere. So, um, yeah, uh, that's Let's what move I got. On. Yeah, okay. All right. Borders black, by the way. All right. Up next is Mr. E by – who drew this from? Ah, yes, our favorite, John K. Snyder. <laughs> and Jay Geldof is the inker here. But yes. once again, John K. Snyder III bringing it. Oh, he does. Mr. E looks fantastic. He's in his own. Mr. E is a, a an old school character. He's been around a long time. He's been around since uh, 1980 uh, in the Secrets of Haunted House. And he is dressed, decked out all in white. And he's got his cane and he's wearing his glasses. Mr. E uh, doesn't have eyeballs. And in fact, you see all these eyes floating in front of him sort of to, to reinforce that point. And then you've got this like large totem next to him and a weird clock and some more machinery. Now, these aren't statted in. These are drawn. And it looks like maybe a, a stone bear face. I'm not sure what that is. And uh, I John K. Schneider just does amazing work with shadows and lines. I love the the horizontal linings and his uh, and his jacket and the shadows. It looks so awesome. Yeah, it's a great it's a great piece. He brings such wonderful dynamic kind of almost geometric approach to it. Everybody seems to be kind of these hard angles. Uh, so I love the inset pictures of the kid reading the girly magazine. That's funny. And then <laughs> and then Mister and now now damn it, that is the Phantom Stranger in the third picture there. I, yes, yes, it is. Okay, finally I got it right. Phantom Stranger's there too. So, and I love look how much history Peter Sanderson gives Mister. Like he fills it, man. Like yeah. he goes all the way to the very end. Well, that cute picture of the kid looking at the dirty magazine. What you're not noticing is the father's hand there holding yes. the sharpened spoon, where he's about to gouge out the boy's eyes. Yes. So, yes. well, it's a cute picture. It's freaking disturbing as yes. hell. Yes. So yeah. So what happens is the kid's looking at a dirty magazine, uh, looking at this woman, and the dad is so upset about this, he decides to help the kid by removing his eyes with a sharpened spoon. It's so disgusting. He abuses the boy all through his life. As an adult, he goes on to battle evil and uh, successfully battles supernatural evils. And uh, then where it really – I mean he was around for just a short period of time. By the way, he's created by Bob Rosakis and Dan Spiegel. Look at that, Dan Spiegel. But I think he drew the original listing for Mystery, I believe. He, it, that would make sense. It would make sense because the whole reason Mystery is even in here is because he's been brought back for the uh, Books of Magic right. storyline. And he got his own – and Mystery got his own miniseries as well. And in there, Timothy Hunter uh, is, is being exploring the universe. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, Mr. E took him to a possible future where Timothy had turned evil, and he decides to kill Timothy for everyone's own good. And there's a character called the Temptress, which we'll talk more about later as well. She gave Mr. E's eyes to someone else. 
And uh, it's all, all about Mr. E's tortured youth. It's, it's, it's very sick. And he has this time travel ability he has by walking. He eventually gets his eyes back. Uh, the key points here, the Books of Magic miniseries, I'm sorry, the Books of Magic miniseries, and then his own miniseries, and it's written here, I'm sorry, the, his own miniseries is written by K.W. Jeter with art by John K. Schneider III. And that miniseries wrapped up just three months ago. So that's, uh, that's very, very recent. Uh, it is kind of, there's one gross thing in here. It says his eyes are blue. But specifically then says, but unattached. Unattached, yeah. Because they've been removed and someone else has them. All right. Yay for John K. Schneider. We love you, sir. Mm-hmm. All right, up next is the Parliament of Trees. So these are uh, Swamp Thing characters. These are the um, – these are basically former plant elementals like Swamp Thing is that have uh, – they've, they've done – their time defending the earth and they are, now they've all gone down to brazil and have taken root as trees as this giant forest the uh, the parliament of trees have existed on earth uh, since the dawn you know i should talk about the art first i'm so sorry the, the piece is done by stone walk we saw him earlier he did some of the early uh, swamp thing issues there is some you see some great really tall trees in the background uh and then in the foreground you see some of the the quote-unquote younger trees that have probably only been there for maybe a couple hundred years rather than thousands of years you see one that looks a lot like swamp thing you see one one that looks almost identical to man thing by the way if you see that mm-hmm. I, I, I just noticed that now uh and so it's uh what do you think of this piece another stan walk piece marred by a ridiculous logo yeah I'll Why give you that. Is that, and the placement there's look at all the space stan walk left in the upper left hand corner to put a logo, and instead they drop it right in the center, practically. Well, if they had, if they had kept that same logo at the same size, if they put it in the upper left hand corner, it would have covered some of those faces of the well, oldest you didn't trees. Have to in the make back. it that size, though. That's true. Well, I, I see what he's trying to do. He's trying to do the round under Parliament. They're trying to do a round sort of like earth or canopy of a tree. Uh, I get what he's going for, but yeah, yeah. But it, but anyway, a nice drawing. And Stan Walk doing really great work in this issue of of, of Who's Who. Yeah. Well, and now that literally as we're talking, I noticed the Man Thing one. I love this thing so much more now. Like before, I was like okay on it. Now the Man Thing's on there. I'm like I love this thing. So <laughs> anyway, so as I mentioned, they've been around since uh, the, the the since life dawned on Earth, pretty much, right? And uh, this piece really details in a lot of detail every single one of the plant elementals that have played a role in the in a. In, Swamp Thing comic book, and it talks about their new forms here at the Parliament. I, I'm not going to go over all these characters, but they've all, you know, it talks about ones from the 1950s, talks about ones from 1905. They actually address the uh, the one from the uh, House of Secrets comic, right? Uh, he's, he's mentioned in here, I believe. And uh, they talk about the recent war with the gray, which is interesting. I didn't realize that Swamp Thing had acknowledged the green and the gray so early on, because uh, in the New 52, they did a war with the gray as well, and I didn't know that that had already been a, a thing here, so. Um, yeah, there it is. I'm sorry. 1905 scientist Alex Olson. Because remember right. the original House of – was it House of Mystery I think it was? House of Secrets. House of Secrets. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because uh, that was always a weird one-up where Alec and Alex and all that stuff where it's like, okay, two swamp things so similar. Well, they explain it and it's all in here. So that's pretty cool. Uh, one of my favorites is at the inset on the back. One of the oldest trees, he has grown into a tree shape that's actually in the shape of a uh, he- DNA helix. Which I just think is really cool. Like one strain is green and one strain is gray because it's been part of the gray now. A whole a bunch of neat ideas. I'll put the. I mean, you know, Alan Moore did a lot more with than just with Swamp Thing. He really built up a whole universe for other writers to hang stuff on. Yeah, and our, our beloved Firestorm uh, decided to dip in there as a fire elemental and really play. No, he did. It, I, when, know, if, I know he. If we ever get there, if we ever get there, you'll you'll find out. So uh, this one's written by Peter Sanderson. First appearance is Swamp Thing number forty nine, and the border is purple for supernatural. 
All right, up next is Shade the Changing Man. So here's Shade sitting there in his awesome, crazy Technicolor coat. He is sitting in an electric chair. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, he took possession of the body of a guy who was in the electric chair. And surrounding him are all these hats of American hats, which are supposed to represent the hat that the American Scream wears, but also sort of representing here that he's amongst the Sea of Americana. Uh, and this is by Chris Bacalo with art, uh, pencil uh, inks by Mark Pennington. What do you think of this one, man? It's a great piece, and, and I'm confused by this because you this issue was on sale November of 1991, right? That's yep. what you said? Yep. Okay. So that means it had to have been done uh, pretty early before that. But I can remember my instructor in third year, Mark Pennington, who was our life drawing instructor, bringing in shade pages for us to finish off when he was behind on deadline. And I can, oh, wow. I can, I can remember seeing this original. Uh, no shit, the, really? Oh, cool, yeah. But, uh, I mean, he had to have had it done long before November because that's when the book was printed. And school didn't start until September. So I was like, was he that? Was it that cut? Was he cutting it that close? I guess it's possible. My memories of, of that time are, are hazy as they get further and further away from me. But, I mean, it, I don't know. Time-wise, that doesn't line up. But I, I can remember seeing this original. I, I, I well, really, is it possible that they returned the original art to him as the anchor and he just that, had it there? I can't imagine why he would have brought it in. Why would you bring an original into class for, for life drawing? It anything to do with it, but I guess that's possible. I don't know. Maybe some of the, I don't know. I'll have to go ask some of the guys that I had that class with, see if they can remember. Cause like I mentioned in, in other episodes, Mark, when Mark would get really behind, he would bring pages in for us to help him finish. Uh, and then his brother would come, grab the pages, and take them off to DC in the afternoon. To get That's his, so crazy. To get done. <laughs> Who's who? I'm sure I, he got done on his own because it was probably more of a you know kind of a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. But again, on some at some point, I remember seeing the original of this piece, and yes, it's gorgeous. Well, this would be a great one for a life drawing class because I mean, it's not just uh, your static picture of of a character. I mean, he's got a body. His body language is telling you something. Yes. He's slumping in the chair. He's got his hips cocked in the chair. It, it looks very much like a, a man on a throne who's just weary or just relaxed or, or almost like a, um, what am I, Jim, Jim Morrison from the, yes, do- very from much the doors. So. Yeah. yeah. So it looks great. So, uh, I've covered a lot of this. So I'll, I'll breathe through it pretty quick. Again, he's from Meta, which is other dimensional world linked to earth. And he was a mind agent or, or a, a changing man who was sent to earth to combat madness that was threatening, because uh, it wasn't just threatening America. It was also threatening Meta. So he got sent there to do it. Now, the way this works is Shade's body goes into this in-between dimension called the area of madness. That area of madness is in between Meta and earth. So he goes to Meta. And there, uh, he's wearing this really powerful thing called the M-Vest, or Madness Vest, and that's where he gets his powers. And his consciousness is transferred into the body of a dying man here on Earth. As I mentioned, that just so happens to be the serial killer who's dying in the electric chair. Uh, sadly, we find out after many issues that Shade's original body in the, in the area of madness is decayed, and now he's trapped on Earth in this body. And he's traveling America again, trying to stop the American screen. Now, the Madness Vest, and it's – now, this is where they really lean in on the um, – the, the Ditko stuff, because uh, it was – yeah, it says created by Steve Ditko here, by the way. Yes, anyway, yeah. um, because the Madness Vest or the M-Vest is the same sort of powers. It basically distorts people's perceptions of shade according to their emotional state. So sometimes parts of his body seem to be enlarged or distorted due to the uh, his adversary's shock or fear. So they actually uh, kind of contribute to some of this. He also has some uh, matter rearrangement powers and some other abilities. And uh, he, at this point, he really does not have complete control over the vest and the powers at all. 
So uh, I, the inset pictures, you see him on the electric chair getting fried, and instead of coloring it, they've just put these color circles to sort of represent that. You see him leaning on the car, talking to Kathy back when he first became uh, came to Earth, so he's still really much in the body of the serial killer. As time goes on, he begins to stop looking like a serial killer and begins to look more and more like Rack Shade, uh, which is his persona from Meta. And then you see him battling the, the American Scream in the back. What you think? Uh again it's really cool I, I really should read this book. yeah i guess i should it's not fair of me to keep asking you i know i'm mean, like I, yeah. did, I, did, I have not a chance i have not had a chance to read any of the trade paperbacks of shade changing man since the last shade changing man <laughs> entry that we covered a couple minutes ago well i'm sorry normally when we cover an issue you know it's a completely different topic so i can ask you that every time so sorry <laughs> All right, so you know, I, I think I, I think this completes my sales pitch for Shade the Changing Man. So let's move on. Okay. All right. Up next is the Swamp Thing, and I was going to do it earlier, but I decided I should save it for here. You make my heart sing. You make everything evil. Actually, I don't remember how the song goes. Oh well. He doesn't make everything evil. No, no, no. Not- you make um, Swamp Thing. Dun 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 dun. I think you, you make are amazing. Yeah, you are amazing. Dun 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 dun. dun. You make everything. I don't know. Anyway, someone else is singing it right now, typing in the comments. So thanks, guys. I appreciate you doing that. So uh, art here is by John Higgins, and he he did a lot of covers of Swamp Thing. So really intricate, intricate design here. And it's Swamp Thing uh, walking through the swamp. And I'm, I'm, assu- I'm making an assumption here, but he appears to be building himself a new body. Because, you know, when he, when he teleports, he can teleport anywhere in the world, and he just builds a new body out of the green. And here, it's just basically a thicket of vines that is slow. Like, and at the bottom, it's just vines. And as you move to the top, you see he's got the face and the chest sort of developing. So it looks like the body is being built as we see it happening. And it's just stunning, man. It's well drawn. The only thing I don't like about it is the fact that he, the way he drew Swamp Thing's face and his gritted teeth, he looks like he's suffering or he's he's in pain. Mm. He's not when he reforms his body. I mean, I know it requires some effort, but it it kind of looks like Swamp Thing under duress, which I don't, I, I just don't know if that's like the image you want to put across on the Who's Who page. But otherwise, the uh, the drawing is nice, and I love the the colored background. The whoever who colored this, Anthony Tollin. Did a great job on the coloring. I love the purple and the mauve and the, the blue yeah, mosquitoes and stuff. So all that is really cool. Um, it's weird that Stan Walk didn't get to do it when he got to do the other Swamp Thing listings. That's then, true. Then it's time for Swamp Thing, and then they give it to somebody else. But they gave it to Jeffrey Lang to write again. There you go. So strange. Uh, I, you know, I don't need to tell you about Swamp Thing, guys. You know, Alec Holland, the bio-restorative formula. Uh, actually, I guess I am going to tell you a little bit about it because I wrote a lot of notes. I thought I didn't. Oh, well. Okay. So Alec Holland and Linda, they're scientists. They developed the bio-restorative formula. Uh, they're sabotage. A bomb goes off. He ends up uh, a combination of Alec, the formula, the explosion, the swamp. All of this transform him into this swamp creature. At least that's what we thought. Years later, we discover that instead of it's actually a man who's transformed into a plant, he's actually a plant that thinks he's a man. <laughs> and he, yeah, right. He goes on to become the plant protector of Earth. You know, he's an elemental. He's part of the green. His wife is Abby. His daughter's Tefe. And, you know, you, I heard this on a, a recent episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. They made a good point. And you may have been the guest. I don't remember. I, I usually tune out when you're talking. But anyway, they made it on the show, Ryan show, they made a really good point that Swamp Thing is one of DC's most successful characters outside of the JLA. I mean, when you t- yeah, Siskoid. That was Siskoid. Z- okay. Yeah. Once you remove the JLA, Swamp Thing's one of their most well known characters. I mean, Harley Quinn, sure, nowadays, but Swamp Thing's massive. So uh, it's really impressive. And, um, you know, the piece is really beautiful. It's really majestic. I really like it. So, um, not much else to say, you know, so no, what, what yeah. else is there to say? That's my, yeah. all 
All right, let's move on. So the next entry is Tefe, which is Swamp Thing and Abigail Arcane's daughter. She is two years old in this drawing. She's a little, little, little tiny kid, and she's sitting on a tree log. It looks like maybe in a tree house, and underneath you can see like a little bassinet that she might sleep in. She's wearing an oversized New Orleans T-shirt, and she's reaching up to play with uh, four bats, um, possibly vampire bats. I'm not sure, but these four bats and it looks like one of them is even landing on her hand. So she's interacting with, with living creatures as a plant elemental. She's interacting with living flesh creatures and, uh, seems to be having fun with it. what you think of this one? It's a cute piece. Uh, very, it is very, very hard to draw infants by this is Bill Joska. Same guy that did Les Purdue. Whoa. Uh, which is okay. what a, what a change up. Uh, I like, I think this one's a lot more, successful um the problem with drawing infants or small children is every line you put on their face ages them tremendously yeah every line and of course the less detail you put on something it makes it a little harder to define or it exposes your weaknesses as an artist uh you really have to be you have to be as good as alex toth to get away with having no detail and make <laughs> it look good um so he's got a few too many lines on tefe's face where tefe kind of looks somewhat like an old man as a baby kind of the, the thing but otherwise it's pretty good um i will say there was a Swamp Thing series in the 2000s that featured Tefe as the main character, and she was a teen yes. girl. I swear, I think I'm the only person that liked that series because it was it was like, it's like the only iteration of Swamp Thing I can think of that was canceled quickly. That book that, that, that book has always had pretty long runs, uh, and I think they canceled that after like 13 issues or something. But I really enjoyed it. I got every one. Do you so, know why? Do you know why you probably enjoyed it? Why? Why it was so well written? Who wrote it? It was the first comic book work. Of a, this creator who really didn't go anywhere named Brian K. Vaughn. Oh, was it really? Okay. Yeah. Right, yeah. That was a good series. That was a yeah. really good series. And drawn well. That was a really yeah, That was really cool. I don't know what – is Tefe a character still now? Is they the new 52? Or I tried to find out. I actually spent some time trying to figure that out. And without Comic Book DB, it is hard. Um, she appeared or, or maybe mentioned – I don't know. She, there are two new 52 issues of Swamp Thing where she, she got credited. I didn't read the issues. I can't tell you whether she actually appears or just gets mentioned or – I don't know, but uh, she's mostly gone. So, so here's some of the details on it. She, she, first of all, by the way, the, the one thing we should mention with this drawing is, at least as I perceive it, is there's a forced perspective. Like her face is closer to you than her body, I think, is part of what we're seeing. Um, at least I, that's how I perceive it because uh, her head's massive. But, I mean, anyway, now that you've told me this thing about the face, I can't see that she doesn't look like a fraggle. Thank you so much. <laughs> anyway, uh, so she is the uh, second Earth Elemental on the planet right now. Originally, the Earth Elemental was uh, called Sprout, and uh, Swamp Thing was instructed to destroy it. And instead of destroying it, he figured out a way to put the Elemental into human form. So Swamp Thing and Abby conceived a child with the help of John Constantine. And uh, the essence of the elemental lives on in the baby. So Tefe is the first earth elemental that's actually a human being. So she's two years old at this point. She can manipulate both plants and animal tissue. So that's sort of a nice bridge between the red and the green. And as you mentioned, there was a series in, uh, in the years 2000 and 2001 where Tefe was the main character. And so uh, they, they brought her to more of a late teenager age, I would say. Maybe uh, 18 or so is what it was. And um, the stories, again, Jeffrey Lang wrote it. And uh, they wrote this entry, and you've got Bill Jaskin on the art, as you mentioned. You've got a nice little inset picture where Tefe's going for some flowers, and you've got – now, see, I would say there is a little bit of sex appeal going on there with Abigail Arcane in that picture. Well, um, right, because she's got – she's in a bikini top and super short shorts there. Yeah, right. So Showing a lot of skin. Well, first appearance as Sprout in Swamp Thing number 65. First appearance as Tefe in Swamp Thing number 90. Now, 
when I started reading Swamp Thing, Tefe was an ongoing character uh, in the Nancy Collins run, but I could just never, I could never wrap my arms around getting into that character much. Now it might've been different. Like when you read the Brian K Vaughn series and she was the main character, not just a toddler. So yeah. Right. All right. Moving on up next, the temptress uh, by John K Schneider, the third and folks, I just got to get this out of the out of the way right now. Holy mother of what is this sexy as hell? Um, it, am I wrong? Well, not going for subtlety. That's for damn sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, another great piece. I, I don't think Snyder has, I think he's batting a thousand, I think, for yes. us. I yes. don't think there's been a piece he's done that we both have not liked at this yes. point, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm not that familiar with this character at all. Uh, I mean, she first appeared in the Mr. E uh, miniseries, which is why she's got a little Mr. E voodoo doll uh, yep. hanging there in, in front of her, uh, her lady business. And so that's really cool. Uh, but yeah, the design is great. The logo, for once is works with the image as opposed to fighting it. That's true. Uh, which I think is really cool. I love her hair, her crazy ass hair sitting on a whole thing of skulls. It's just, it's great. all over. And, and, and I specify the sexiness. Sorry. You know, if those of you who don't like me doing that, but it's, it's on purpose guys. She's called temptress. Well, she's called temptress. And, yes. and, and her power is all about tied into sexuality and things like that. It's definitely on purpose. And John K. Schneider hit the mark without a doubt. So, uh, the, the, she's from this other dimensional race and they use humans as pawns in their games and they feed on human disaster, much like, uh, Ryan Daly does. And to, <laughs> to power this massive device, they needed the eyes of a young boy. And so she, um, and we talked about this earlier in Mr. E where, you know, his dad caught him looking through a dirty magazine. That dirty magazine was pictures of her. She conceived this entire situation. She got the magazine to the kid. It's pictures of her. She drove the dad into the rage. She engineered the entire thing for him to lose his eyes that way. So she, she basically did this so she could, you know, deal with the suffering and get the eyes. Well, decades later, she's totally forgotten about that. She has moved on. And, and she actually comes across Mr. E stranded at the end of time. So she tries to toy with him again, but in the end, Mr. E's familiar, this, this monstrous creature, uh, ends up, uh, he k- kills her. Um, and, and so looking at her powers, you know, they talk about, uh, her, her exact abilities are unknown. She possessed all this different stuff, traverse dimensions, blah, blah, blah. But it says one of her powers is the ability to open up a person's soul and let the person explore it in excruciating detail. And that's sort of an interesting thought. I was like, you know, if, if, if your soul was ba- laid bare and you had to look at it and see all the, the dark stuff you don't want to see, ugh, I think that would be pretty hard to look at. So. She, has, she has to have the most minimalist details of any who's who listing because it's alter ego, none. Occupation, none. Known relatives, none. Group affiliation, none. Based operations, yeah. other dimensional space, height variable, weight variable, eyes variable, hair variable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing is what you're telling me. So this is one of those cases we've talked about before with uh, being very, very contemporary. I mean, she just appeared in the Mr. E series three months ago. If this had been done a year or two later, she wouldn't be in here because she never appears again. She's not relevant. She was great in that miniseries. And again, John K. Schneider really delivers, but she's not, you know, that critical. So, all right, moving on uh, to The Three Witches. This is amazing by Kelly Jones. It has got the three different witches, which represent um, what they call the maiden, the mother, and the crone. And uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. So you've got this young, buxom, beautiful blonde. You've got this sort of matronly older woman who's, who's heavyset. And you've got this old, old crane with an old-fashioned lantern. And in the background there, they're looking at this person who's been hung, who's, who's 
hanging by a noose in his, their desiccated body. There's a cat actually sitting on the body's shoulders and lots of shadows, very Kelly Jones uh, illustrated. I think this thing is amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's, I mean, Kelly Jones obviously – uh, very much in the Bernie Wrightson mold, as you've already mentioned. But to me, he he can kind of dial up the Wrightson or dial it down. And here he's super dialing it up, even oh, though yeah. even though they're not particularly Swamp Thing characters. Uh, to me, it just sort of fits itself because, of course, they first appeared in the Witching Hour, yep. not uh, not Swamp Thing. But nevertheless, it seems like he's especially Cynthia, who looks like a Wrightson woman because Wrightson loved to draw women with big hips, big breasts. You know, very, very big curves. Uh, his women were were very Zoftig. And uh, Kelly Jones is absolutely doing that here. Yeah. And at this point, uh, as you said, they were introduced in this. They were horror hosts, right, when they first yeah. came about in that book, The Witching Hour. But here they've been appropriated by Neil Gaiman for Sandman. So that's why they become relevant at this point. And, uh, again, the issue of Maiden, Mother, and Crone come into it because they talk about how they've existed all through history and have been recognized in different cultures. Like in ancient Greece, they were the Three Fates. And then later they were the Furies. And uh, they even talk about in fairy tales that they, they represent you know, the, the sweet maiden, the caring godmother, and then the evil witch. I mean, they've all been around all through history in all these different cultures. And apparently, I love the way they word this here. By the 1970s, the women's movement had led them to being confident enough to come out as hosts and storytellers. So they're actually acknowledging that they were the host of that horror comic, which I think is hilarious. I like in the height weight. It says height. The witches refuse to be measured weight. The witches refuse to divulge. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I didn't even notice that. That's fantastic. I do like their base of operations, hither and yon. <laughs> yeah. So uh, recently, Sandman or Morpheus called upon them to help him reclaim his lost possessions. Now, interesting to note here, this one's written by Allison Quitney. Alissa. Alissa. I'm sorry. Alissa. Thank you. Uh, And it took me some searching to figure out how she was connected because she didn't write any of these comics. Well, she was a Vertigo editor at this point. Right. Now she is a famous writer. Now she's got a lot of writing credit. It sounds like you got something to add to this, don't you? No, I'm just, I was familiar with her. So when I saw her name, I was like, oh, look at that. Because I knew her as an, not know her personally, but I knew of her as an editor at Vertigo. And I saw here, oh, she actually wrote something. Yep. So, and again, she's she's a very successful uh, writer now. So, all right, uh, Borders Purple and uh, everything else we already talked about. So we can move on. All right, up next is Harry Potter, uh, <clears throat> drawn by Paul Johnson. You've got Harry here. He is riding a skateboard in his very you know London gear. He's got his high tops and his glasses, and he's got his owl familiar there. Uh, if you don't know the story of him, this is a twelve-year-old boy from London whose mother died in an automobile accident. He's got dark hair and glasses, and he's unaware of the magical world, and he's got a pet owl. He's destined to be the most powerful sorcerer in the world. Oddly enough, they misspelled Harry Potter as Tim Hunter, though, here in the entry. So, uh, creator credit mistakenly lists Neil Gaiman and John Bolton. It should be J.K. Rowling, without a doubt, because that's 100% original. Um, what do you think of the art, buddy? Uh, the artwork is very nice. I like the foreshortening. That's hard. Again, I've mentioned a thousand times, hard to do. So you've got like his foot and the skateboard is super in the foreground and then he's receding in the background. That said, this image makes me want to punch Tim Hunter in the face. Uh, <laughs> he just looks like such a dingus. And uh, He's, he's I doing mean, magic, but it looks like jazz hands. <laughs> it sure does. And it, it, this looks like the graphic that would accompany, that would accompany a uh, CD-ROM for like 1994's uh, MS Word or something like yes, you know, yes. the magic of computers. <laughs> That's what it looks. I just, <laughs> I want this. I just, I want to reach in and strangle this little punk. I mean, to me, I'm like, put him and Danny Chase in a bag and throw it in the river. This is just. Oh my god! Now this is just solely based on the art, right? Not yeah, the story. Just, there's just something about the pose and his ta-da face. I just, oh god. 
This this entry, the art really bothers me because Books of Magic is gorgeous. It's a yes. beautiful, yes. beautiful yes. book. And then you get this. <laughs> I, I, I really like <laughs> your 1980s MS Word <laughs> analogy. It's brilliant. It's like, oh, right, exactly. I mean, it's just it's it, it looks like these images are all just slapped on top of each other <laughs> with, with, with no rhyme or reason. There's no design behind it. I mean, I, I get the pocket full of kryptonite. But it also looks like it, maybe it was drawn from pencils and, and, and scanned from pencils. Because even the ink lines aren't real solid. Um, they don't. They aren't real definitive. So yeah, it's it's not my favorite piece. But I like the character. I really like Books of Magic. Uh, his photo in the back looks hilarious. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> isn't that isn't that McLovin from Superbad? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, here you get Phantom Stranger Phantom again. Stranger again. <laughs> Because the, the way this works is um, in the Books of Magic, he, Timothy had four guides, which uh, were affectionately called the Trench Coat Brigade. The Phantom Stranger took Timothy on a tour to the past where he learned the history of magic. John Constantine took him to the mystics of the present day and, of course, got him in trouble. Uh, Dr. Occult took him to the mystic realms, such as the fairy realm and the dreaming and places like that. And the final issue, Mr. E took him to the future and tried to kill Timothy to prevent the chance of Timothy ever turning evil. And that's what led to all the other Mr. E stuff we've talked about. And really, while Timothy was an interesting character, uh, it was really just an excuse for Neil Gaiman to sort of explore and even quantify a little bit all the different realms of magic within the DC universe. I think that was the real point of that series. But it was a great book. Really loved it. Uh, Eventually, spun off and, and Timothy Hunter got his own ongoing series. It might've had a couple different ongoing series under the vertical banner. I'm not sure. Um, so here, this one's written by Peter Sanderson. Border is purple. Uh, we talked about the art and uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of Harry Potter going on here. Whole lot of Harry Potter going on here. And books of magic had ended just earlier this year. So, all right, Rob, uh, we are finished. That is the issue. Now we're at the point where I always ask you, what are your favorite entries in the book? Uh, just based on the art, uh, certainly the two John K. Snyder pieces, Mr. E and Temptress. Uh, I really like Abby Arcane. I really liked Cliff Steele. Uh, those are probably, those are probably my favorite ones. Okay, all right. Um, you're wrong, but that's fine. Uh, mm-hmm. I also had Cliff Steele and Temptress on my on my list. Uh, I've also got Danny the Street because it's just for its creativity. That, yeah, that deserves a special yep. award. Yeah. Kathy George is just stunning. Uh, the Bach- Now, maybe, I'm, again, a little biased because of my shade love, because I also shade the Changing Man. Both of those made it on the list. Shade the Changing Man because of that pose. It just looks great the way he's sitting there, almost as if, like, maybe he does a class in life drawing or something. Um, and Kathy George looked great. Uh, Kid Eternity was really stark and really Yeah, that, oh, that one, too. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And then my favorite in the whole book is Three Witches. Uh, that one okay. was amazing. Yep. So... All right, folks, that is issue 15 in the books. Woof, man, only one more issue left. So we're going to have to pack in about 18 installments of Who's That before we get to the next issue, I think. So we're going to do Who's That? We're going to cover Harry Potter. Anyway, all right, folks, we're no, going to take. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're going to take a quick podcast from a break. And when we come back, we are going to cover your listener feedback. In 2014, two comic fans joined forces to do a Doom Patrol podcast. As there was no Doom Patrol comic series at the time, they called it Waiting for Doom. That was us, me, Mike, and him, Paul. In 2016, DC Comics became fearful of the power of Waiting for Doom and sought to appease us by bringing the comic back. Uh, That's not exactly how it went. In 2018, terrified of the sheer horde-organising power of Waiting for Doom, DC Universe announced a Doom Patrol TV show. Uh, I think they were planning that without us. In 2019, they again brought back the Doom Patrol comic, hoping we would not smite them. 
Uh, this makes no sense. In 2021, they realised we were the most unstoppable force in existence and released the Doom Patrol movie. Uh, this is pure fantasy now. In 2022, a terrified motion picture academy awarded the Doom Patrol movie every single Oscar, including Best Documentary and Foreign Language Film. Uh, That's enough, Paul. Look, we just love the Doom Patrol and have fun talking about them. You can find us on all podcast places and now Spotify. And check out our website, waitingfordoom.com, or we will wipe you out, all of you. It's midnight. Fetid swamps to creepy castles. The Podcasting Hour is your home for horror on the Fire and Water Network. Join me, PJ Frightful, on this quarterly anthology podcast that gazes into the mysterious and terrifying shadows of DC Comics. The moon is full and the bell tolls for midnight. Now it's time for Who's Who, How's, and Why's. This is your feedback, folks. And we're going to be pulling this from the most recent episode of Who's Who, issue number 14. Most of this is going to be all website comments and emails. Because remember, folks, we only pull the comments from the website because we have 70 three comments on the last episode rob um and so yeah just just to try and control uh, the feedback we pull the website comments the itunes reviews and the emails so please if you want to be involved in the feedback leave your message there or send us an email uh and of course we do acknowledge everyone who shared the show at the end so getting into it uh for 32 pages of feedback uh, i also want to say if you want to get a comment and get your comment in before frank because after that we're just exhausted <laughs> We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. So first comment comes from uh, Ricky Sharp. Ricky says, first off, I just want to say I'm a first-time commenter but a long-time fan. Uh, welcome aboard, Ricky. Glad to have you, man. says, I'll make this short and sweet. Having recently lost my Who's Who collection and other comics in a wildfire out here on the West Coast. <sighs> I know. I want to let you know the Who's Who podcast has greatly uplifted my spirits. Doesn't quite take the place of reading the old issues of, and loosely, it does make me smile and be able to listen to the old uh, to the episodes at my disposal. We'll definitely start over at episode one when I hit some comic book shops, scrounging through back issues, trying to rebuild the collection. Thank you both for lifting this old fanboy spirits. I, I read that comment. I had to take a minute. I mean, I, I, Ricky, I can't tell you how much I am so sorry for not just the comics you lost, but everything else you've lost, man. I cannot imagine what that's got to be like. Um, you're a strong man, I got to say, for going through that tragedy and then finding a way to find something to be upbeat about. So um, props to you, man. Props to you. And I, I hope life gets better. Yeah, that's that, that, this, what Shag just said. That's awful. I mean, again, obviously, who's who here we're talking about, but everything that you might have lost in a fire and everything people have lost out there, it's just a, it's an under, I think it's a, a an underpublicized story for people not living in California. Yeah, agreed. Because 2020 just keeps giving. Yes, that's right. Um, speaking of painful things in 2020, Ryan Daly, Iron <laughs> Water Podcast Network. <laughs> Uh, he, he, he hosts uh, Batman Nightcast or Cheerscast, although I'm sure those shows are getting canceled shortly. He says, I haven't listened to the episode yet, 
But did you guys know that DC is going to publish a who's who omnibus? Uh, smart ass. <laughs> um, he says, uh, so Shag was in on the Kennedy assassination, huh? Can he confirm that Ted Cruz's father was the actual trigger man? See, that's funny. You really got into detail about the Kennedy assassination in this episode. So that feels like that gives Ryan's comic greater credits. I, I guess I was talking about Doctor Who or something. It must have been what it is. I don't remember because yeah. it was July when we did that episode. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, for me, regarding Cal Durham, I'm sure Rob knew this once upon a time, but it's since long forgotten. But the legacy of Aparo's Cal Durham character lives long in the Young Justice cartoon, where Aqualeds and lady name is Cal Durham. I believe that was incorporated into the new 52 version of the character, too, who is the son of Black Mana and Mira's sister. Um, I didn't know. I think I knew that. If I had, I long oh. forgotten it. So pretty cool. Holy crap. I, I would have been exposed to that character's real name, certainly with a number of the comics we've read. We even read one not too long ago in those giant size books. Never pronounce it out loud mm-hmm. to realize it was Cal Durham. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Ryan taught me something today. That's the first. All right. Then we're from Michael Kramer. He says, uh, and by the way, I should mention, we just cherry pick comments here because, again, 32 pages of feedback, folks. So we just read bits and pieces here just to, to, to kind of hit some of the high points. So Michael Kramer writes, Catherine Colbert, there was a detail my friend John Hart pointed out to me back when this issue came out. As Catherine Colbert is sipping her coffee, the framed picture of Captain Adams on her desk is actually reacting to the coffee about to spill over all over him. So that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. That was really clever. Uh, the artist did that where I think it was Terry Austin having uh, Captain Adam like over the coffee. That's cute. Then he wrote about the untouchables. He goes, the Bonnie and Clyde with John Dillinger trio would be featured in an episode of Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman. I don't know if the producers of the TV series were all that cognizant of the recent appearances of these comic book counterparts. That's really interesting. I guess I didn't realize they were in uh, Lois and Clark. Pretty cool. I had no idea. My God. Yep. Uh, (laughs) Then we heard from uh, Michael Bailey from the uh, Fortress of Bailey 2 podcasting network. He talks a little bit about Pete Ross, and I just want to point out one of the things he said. He goes, Pete Ross was, because I said Pete Ross becomes vice president. He says, Pete Ross is not only vice president, but he becomes president for about five minutes after Lex Luthor is brought down. Wow. Way to go, Pete. <laughs> I guess that's, Pete became vice president when Lex caught COVID or something. I guess what <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> regarding Rex the Wonder Dog, Rob's love of the Rex entry is amazing and made my day. Well, thank you, Michael, because you made my day, too, because I just love that piece. Oh, I heard from Al Girding, uh, who, by the way, if you don't know Al, on Facebook, he goes by Van Z, which is a reference to the city of Candor. And, uh, the you know, when Superman and Jimmy Olsen used to go there, they were Nightwing and Flamebird. Well, after they left, there were some people from Candor who stood up to become Nightwing. And uh, Van Z is Nightwing, if I remember correctly. And Al Girding says, this is my favorite Nightwing costume for Dick. Not my all-time favorite, though, because, well, you know, Candor. So, <laughs> very nice. They heard from Kevin from New Orleans. Kevin says, I can't figure out who the hell the two characters are in front of Batman and the Flash on the invasion page. Can someone please let me know? So Martin Grace uh, came up to the plate and said, that's Dr. Megala and Babylon from the Captain Adams series. So there we go. Well done, Martin. Thank you. I love it when someone responds to a question that you and I can't answer. Actually, I knew who they were. But oh, anyway. did you? Okay. I had no idea. I was like, I have no I, idea. I just tend not to comment in the comment threads. And Cisco right. always, gives me, always gives me crap for this. He's like, whenever I make a comment, he's always like, oh my gosh, I comment. If it's my own show, I don't tend to comment on the network simply because I'm going to talk about it in a feedback right. segment. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, David H. Gutierrez, uh, he says, excellent show, gents. On the topic of credit, I recently saw that Nightwing was credited to just Wolfman and Perez on one of the animated features. Do you guys think that Kane and Figure deserve some credit on that, too? When is it too much? 
Always happy to see Rob diving into an entry as he did for Rex the Wonder Dog. Look for Rex to make an appearance in the Snyder HBO Justice League recut. That's not even remotely funny, David. Yes, um, it is. No, no. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, that's a good I, – I don't know how Nightwing is credited to just Wolfman Perez and you don't mention – Bill Finger and Bob Kane since they created Dick Grayson. I just, but again, it's so complicated. Uh, how much person gets what, you know? So I don't know. I don't know how they work all that stuff out. There was a DC trading card series called Cosmic Teams. Um, I think series two, and they had a Nightwing card. And the problem was that company that produced that trading card series didn't have the license for the Batman trading cards because that was licensed to a different company because of the Batman movies. (laughs) And so there's a Nightwing card, and the whole time they just keep saying he used to be part of a dynamic duo. They don't actually reference Robin. I'm not even sure if it has the name Dick Grayson. It might. I don't know for sure. Jeez. But uh, cause I haven't looked at it in a number of years. But, yeah, they couldn't reference that he was Robin. So isn't that crazy? They should have just shoved in the protector like they did in that right. drug comic. <laughs> So, folks, be sure uh, to head over to David Gutierrez's business. He's the owner and operator of the Katana Banana Fruit Stand. So, check that I'm, out. I purposely left that out and then jams it back in. So That is absolutely true. That, one, ever, that will never stop. Yeah. Uh, Joe Cabrera says, uh, now that the omnibus is coming, I wonder if they'll make any corrections. Surely someone kept track of them. Heck, they can just go through your back catalog. <laughs> uh, and wouldn't it be incredible if Zoom's pages appeared in there? I know it's extremely unlikely, but a kid can dream. Yeah, it's more than extremely unlikely, but yeah, that would be amazing, and they belong there because they are that good. I actually took the Superman of Earth One uh, entry that he did for us all those years ago. I went to Kinko's, printed it out at the right dimensions, and folded it and slipped it into my issue of Fusu. So it's actually physically in, not not stapled in, but it's just in the page. Right, it folded it in, yeah, yeah, in my actual issue. Then we heard from. Um, Zenoic? Z- Zenic? I'm not sure how you would say that. I think um, Zen- Zenoic, I would believe. I think so. Oh, there you go. Okay. He writes, uh, hey, Robin Shag, thanks for another great episode. I discovered the series right before quarantine and have used the time to burn through all nine years of the podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. See, what's happened is we've driven him so insane that he doesn't even have a name anymore. It's just Zenoic now. Uh, and he goes, I'm finally caught up. Another great episode. One note, how could your discussion about Maxi Zeus not include a mention of Will Sasso's hilarious turn as the character on the Harlequin animated series? Comedy gold all the way. You know, Zenoic, I, I'm at fault here. I should have absolutely done that because I've watched the Harlequin series, both season one and two. I adore that series so freaking much. And the Maxi Zoo stuff was hilarious. So I'm actually ashamed that I failed to mention that. So thank you for bringing up my private shame. I appreciate that. Uh, then we heard from Symbol Pending, who does the Power Girl blog called Symbol Pending. They write, to squeeze an oblique Power Girl reference, uh, apparently the Terra from Team Titans is also the same race as the third Terra, which is the one that Kara, meaning Power Girl, looked after in the 2009 series that brought Symbol Pending into the whole crazy world of comics. So that's nice how it all sort of fits together. Very cool. Thank you, Symbol Pending. Uh, Chris Franklin from our own network, of course, the House of Franklin Sign, which is running right now. Those wonderful toys, YouTube videos, which he's cranking out at amazing speed and a lot more uh, has a few comments. Uh, Shag, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. Uh, he talks a lot about Nightwing. And um, I just uh, I wanted to jump out here. And the part where he says that first appearance gaffe of Detective Comics number 29 that we noted in the issue, he says it began here. It was picked up in subsequent secret files and even a few of those DK books. Clearly, they were referencing this not quite definitive directory. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for bringing that up, Chris. I, we've seen that where they'll they'll misprint 
You know, I think this happened with Silver Banshee too, if I remember right. They'll misprint something one time, and then it just keeps getting picked up on subsequent uh, things because people look to who's who as the definitive directory. So, yeah, that's a great <laughs> point. Thanks, Chris. He says, uh, Ragman does look boss here. The character would look pretty ridiculous if drawn by lesser artists. But thankfully, Joe Kubert and Pat Broderick know how to really pull this look off. But I always imagine he smells bad. I can't get past it. <laughs> He's probably like Rorschach. And they, they, they talked about that in Watchmen, that Rorschach doesn't bathe or something. And the other heroes didn't like to be around them. I just always figured he smells like mothballs. You know, because like, he had quilts are in, like, you know, in a drawer full of mothballs. But anyway. <laughs> he smells like Grandma. <laughs> he talks about Pantha. He says he liked Pantha too. He goes, I always thought of her outfit kind of looked a bit like that early version of Vixen who got eaten up in the DC implosion and only made a few appearances in before her Justice League Detroit makeover. You're absolutely right, Chris. Pantha definitely looks like the original um, uh, Vixen uh, look to me. True that. Uh, regarding Rex the Wonder Dog, I agree this is a gorgeous piece. I only wish Rex was considered a founder of the Justice League. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> did participate in Steve Englehart's continuity-busting pre-origin of the JLA revealed in JLA 144. We should cover that issue on the network somewhere. It's got Rex, the Blackhawks, Vigilante, and Plastic Man, as well as the classic JLA, Robin, Robin Man, Lois Lane, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen. Seems perfect for a jam episode. Chris, I couldn't agree more. And my, I had this idea for a while. I would love us as I'm going to say it now because. Oh no! Don't, don't, don't! You're you're jinxing us now. No, can you let me finish? I know where you're going. No, you don't. You absolutely do not know where I'm going. Wait, are you know where I'm going? Like I like 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 Swamp Thing story. Audio dramatization. No. Okay. Prove me wrong. Calm down, for God's sakes. I figure after nine years, I can read your mind. Go you ahead. went on and on about the endless, which was, you know, perfect because it was endless. <laughs> uh, I just, I just, okay. Okay, yeah, it is an audio. <laughs> no, 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 it is. No, no, no. Yes, no, it is. Yes, no, it is. No, it's not. I, I know that during, during COVID, live table reads are a big thing now where every they get a bunch of people together and they just do a live table read also called an audio dramatization no that's not the same thing because you're not talking sound effects and stuff like that i think it would be fun and again the reason i'm pitching this to everybody now is because of guy i'll let you all know when i pitch something to the network it always gets rejected so i but then you know it's that's behind closed doors so i'm pitching it to all of you now <laughs> So you can get everybody in on this. I think for the for our fifth anniversary, which is coming up, the network's fifth anniversary is coming up in February. We should do a live Zoom table read of Justice League of Emberger 144, where a bunch of us can all play the different parts. There, that's my idea. Can I play Rex? <laughs> if we do it, you can play Rex the Wonder Dog, no problem. Oh gosh! All right. Uh, see, Rob's holding us all hostage by putting this out there publicly now. See, we like to shame you in the private thread, man. All right. All right. Up next, Chris talks about the team at Titans. He goes, I was so into the Titans at this point. I bought every single version of Team Titans. Number one, I thought the team had a lot of potential, too, even though having the Lord of Chaos and Monarch ruling the future seemed confusing to begin with. The instant costume slash look changes the team had from teen to team seemed a bit jarring, too, because, yeah, their costumes, like they appeared in New Titans, and then by the time Team Titans came around, they had new costumes. Um, Then Jonathan Peterson left the books, and everything went to crap. (laughs) <laughs> Which is the same time that Bill Jaska was drawing it, by the way. Oh, God. Uh, Matt Saroy says, how can there be 20 comments before mine and no one has thanked the two of you uh, for DC finally giving us an omnibus? All joking aside. You're welcome. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah. You guys reignited my love for this series. I'm sure you did it for others as well. 
No, I think we set out to give it to Matt Sorois. I think that's yeah. what we said in the early first episode. I think we say yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, the fact that so many people texted you about the upcoming release, whether it was thousands or just dozens, seemed like thousands, proves how much Rob <laughs> and Chag are identified with this series by a lot of people. So unless I missed it in a previous comment, allow me to be the first to thank you for a job well done. I don't believe it's a coincidence that Marvel and DC have gone, have gone back to Treasure Editions and gave Digest a try in recent years either. Making it rain, people. We're making it rain. All right. All right uh, now if my Blue Devil, all my Blue Devil attention would finally pay off. All right. <clears throat> then we're from Nick Vector. He said, uh, we talked a lot about Nightwing. And, um, and, and he says, my suspected reason for this Nightwing entry was a planned Nightwing miniseries in the early 1990s by Marv Wolfman and artist Arbit. Uh, Art T. Bear. The series was mentioned in Amazing Heroes, and there was an Art T. Bear Nightwing poster for sale related to the project, as well as an Art T. Bear pinup in the Titans sellout special. This is all true and uh, very interesting, and actually several people mention it, and that we almost had a Nightwing miniseries very early on, and it just didn't happen, and it's uh, a little disappointing. So thanks, Nick. Then we heard from Tom Panarese from Pop Culture Affidavit and Required Reading. He says, I remember being so excited for this issue. Now, we should point out that Tom is sort of our resident uh, Teen Titans cheerleader for this era, especially so. Because I remember being so excited for this issue when it dropped in 1991 and for years afterwards had a serious beef with it because it completely spoiled the ending of the Titans storyline for me. The New Titans was a book that was just um, notorious for shipping late. And as I eagerly read the Titans-related entries, I saw the story details that wouldn't come to fruition until a couple of months later in the, were in there and revealed. It was so annoyed, especially after a full year of cliffhangers and anticipation. I've since gotten over it. Well, you know, Tom, by writing that much comment and some of the stuff I didn't even write, I'm not sure you're over it yet. But uh, I didn't realize the timing of that. that yeah, that this came out. Oh, you know, I think I did mention um, when we got to the Wildebeest, I mentioned, oh, his first appearance isn't for like four more issues. And yet he was in the book. So, yeah, that's a good point. All right. And then uh, he also references the Nightwing miniseries by R.T. Bear. And then uh, he goes, as for individual entries, I'm not actually a fan of this new Titans pinup because while I love Grummet's art and it's drawn well, it's not particularly dynamic. They're just standing there. And, you know, he makes a good point that, well, there's a lot of colorful costumes, a lot of interesting designs and everything. Yeah, it was just kind of just standing there. So, yeah, that's a, that's one one miss for Grummet. Not, not doesn't happen too often. Then we heard from Damien Drought-Whiter from the Should I Love This comic podcast he does with his husband. He writes, Catherine Colbert, I think the problem with this piece is that Terry Austin has based Catherine's face on Bart Sears' version and has not taken into consideration his tendency to give women manly chins. She would have worked better if Terry uh, style if he had referenced Moving Day. That's a fair point. Fair point. Uh, regarding Dr. Alchemy, he says, a terrible logo again, and I have a theory. Back in the day, Todd Klein used to do the production on Who's Who and would get credit for doing it. He has shared on his blog loads of information about his time in DC production as referred to boxes of original and photosetted logos going back decades they used to use. When they needed a logo, they would search through the boxes for a pre-existing logo. If they couldn't find something that worked, they would design something new. Todd has shared pictures of a lot of these logos because he obtained many of the files after DC digitized them in the mid-90s. This issue was published in 1991, so the files aren't digitized yet, so they can't get old logos off the computer. They think they could find old logos in the files, but between issues 9 and 10 of the series, DC moved offices, and I bet they hadn't managed to reorganize their files yet. So they could get Todd to design them new logos, but he left staff in 1987 and is now the award-winning letterer of Sandman. I bet his price had gone up. Quick solution is to use a commercially available font on the entries. I reckon my theory could work. 
Wow. You know, Damien wow. just really comes with the, with the knowledge on this stuff. So, wow, that is really insightful. Thank you, Damien. I, I mean, it's just a theory, but it fits what we know, and it makes a lot of sense. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he also says that regarding Maxi Zeus, terrible character, terrible logo, amazing entry. Jim Apparel was a god among men. <laughs> co-sign Damien co-sign. sounds like a political campaign um, it says Millennium my first DC comic was Millennium number two so I have an inordinate amount of love for this crossover but even I know it wasn't great Bob Greenberger actually makes it sound better than it was and Joe Staten really brings it I love the framing of this scene it feels very Ditko-y hmm, very interesting alright uh, man Millennium number Millennium number two man you, you came in rough alright uh, Obsidian you act because uh, when we looked at this we noticed the creator call it, uh, credit was the inker Mike Macklin we're like how did that happen and he, he got some answers for us uh, you asked how the inker got creator credit the original plan was for Jerry Ordway to continue to pencil All-Star Squadron and for his studio mate Mike Macklin to pencil Infinity Inc if you reread All-Star Squadron you'll see there's an occasional story penciled by Macklin apparently they realized that Mike Macklin wasn't quite fast enough for to pencil a monthly book and as Jerry Ordway had enjoyed helping to design the Infinity Inc characters he asked to do the new book but most of the Infinity Inc characters were designed by Mike Macklin and then developed by Jerry the weirdest element of Obsidian for me is that apparently Roy Thomas named Todd Rice after a fan. It always seems risky to name company characters after real people as someone can later completely change them. Hmm. That's an interesting point and interesting information. Thank you so much. And about Ragman, he says, I'm going to pick on Rob for calling this the original logo. On the first issue of Ragman, the same logo outline is used, but the patchwork design is made up of photographs of pieces of fabric. I always liked that version the best, but it was replaced by the drawn patchwork, patchwork from issue three. I remember reading an interview with Joe Kubert where he talks about finding the right fabrics and creating the image. I love the fact that he puts so much time into getting the logo right. That is fascinating. That is really interesting. I wonder if the logo smelled. Hmm. Yeah, I do remember that, that, that first cover's logo. It was different. So, yeah, I didn't uh, – I forgot about that. Uh, regarding Rex the Wonder Dog, he says, uh, my favorite entry, it's out of the Ty Temple and had to convince them to include Rex as he recently been a guest star in Flash. He must really be a Wonder Dog if he can control a horse – Horses are evil. <laughs> okay. There's a story there, yeah. Uh, Damien's scaring me here. Yeah. Uh, Sean Ross from the Pulp to Pixel Pulp to Pixel Network, Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond podcast. He says, great show, guys. I'm so glad you went through uh, the Titans entry because I couldn't recognize one of the characters and it was driving me crazy. I didn't recognize Panther with her head on. I'll leave now. Oh, that is a reference which actually gets referenced many times in the feedback about Jeff Johns and Infin- uh, Infinite Crisis when Superboy Prime just tears apart all these various titans and knocks Panther's head off. Um, it's just oh disgusting and revolting, and uh, it really bothers a lot of people. And uh, so thanks so much, Sean. Really appreciate that. <laughs> they were from Steve Gibbons. Yeah, it was Steve, we, we read some feedback from Steve last episode. He goes, how surprised was I to get in the listener feedback for the recent Who's Who podcast and hear you guys mention my iTunes review in the email I sent a few months back? I was brushing my teeth at the time, and I had to do a literal spit take followed by a holy F word when I heard my name come out of Shag's mouth. After I shook off the requisite dirty feelings that overcome, that overcomes anyone when Shag says their name, I was overjoyed that you guys not only read my review and email, but were quoting from both of them. So cool. This really made my day, guys. Thanks so much. Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Steve, because that's part of the reason we really do this feedback. Because it, honestly, it would be easier to end the show without doing feedback. But you guys are such a critical part of this community. A lot of what the, the Fire and Water Podcast Network is today was built out of the original comment section of the Who's Who podcast. 
podcast. That's kind of how we got to know a lot of these people. And um, it's really important us to read everyone's feedback when we can. That's why we try and at least name check everyone. So. Steve goes on to write a, a really wonderful uh, long story. I'm not going to get into it here. Uh, he even acknowledges he's an English teacher, so he's too verbose. <laughs> but he tells this wonderful story about Peter Tomasi. And uh, Steve has a second job where he works at a hotel during the off-season. And Tomasi came in, and there was all these almost like a sitcom sort of hijinks happen. And uh, all these things were kind of going wrong, and Steve was feeling really bad. But he ended up having a really nice interaction with, Steve, uh, with Peter Tomasi. And Peter Tomasi even asked him at one point uh, while he was working what he was currently reading, and it was actively engaged in a short com- chat about comic books. And Steve got a chance to say he uh, talked about stuff he was reading and how they were inspired by Picks from Who's Who podcast. And he got to explain the premise of our podcast. And Peter Tomasi apparently marveled at how extensive an endeavor it must be for us to pull that off. <laughs> and uh, he says he really appreciated, Steve really appreciated uh, Tomasi taking the time to talk to him like a fan. And he didn't know uh, if that was actually his intention, but it felt like him uh, initiating a conversation with me was a way of uh, any sort of putting aside any of the embarrassment that Steve was feeling over again, the hijinks that had happened earlier. And it was incredibly kind of him to do that. So yeah, I th- it was a wonderful story. Thank you, Steve, for so much for sharing yeah, wow, that. Wow. That's amazing. Then we're here from Max Traver and he says, Nightwing, and he goes, I'm all for mullets and comics. Just not this one. Also, I prefer the disco collar to this one. Wait, am I wrong about everything? <laughs> Max, maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, regarding Rex, the wonder dog. Uh, obviously he said, if you want to get me to read your feedback, just mention Rex, the wonder dog. He says, Captain America is the Rex of the Captain America is the Rex, the wonder dog of the Marvel universe. Oh my gosh. This entry is amazing. The character is amazing. And Rex should be in charge of the justice league forever. <laughs> read that secret origins issue, Max. You would love it. If you haven't read it, that's uh, it's all a riff on Captain America. I would love him in charge of the justice league. That'd be amazing. Yeah. You know, that would be <laughs> Rhyme to Rareman, Roll Roll, Rockerman, Ruby. He's not Scooby Doo. Stop. <laughs> All dogs talk like that. All that. dogs do. <laughs> I think uh, the little dog, oh gosh, from uh, Laugh Olympics, it's not Snidely Whiplash, but the little Muttley. dog, Muttley. Muttley. I think Muttley would have something to say about that. <laughs> Valor. I love this character and this era of the Legion. This entry, even with all the talent behind it, is just super dull to me. Also, a full panel of Lobo for the insets? What the frag? <laughs> Uh, from Siskoid from our network. He says, uh, this is not a comment on the show, but on the issue itself. This is the weakest issue of the series for me because I couldn't give a rat's ass about the Titans of this era, Gosh. Tom Grummet or not. And yet I'm still among, I am still among the incensed that Panther was beheaded matter of factly in Infinite Crisis by Superboy Prime. The rolling head of Panther was a blog meme for a while and it is emblematic of post 2000 DC comics. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. And Jeffrey R., I, I had talked about Dr. Alchemy and the stories that appeared in The Flash on about Dr. Alchemy and Mr. Element and, and the psychic twin and how just ridiculously complex it was. And Jeff's R. says that, that that Dr. Alchemy story was the main reason I decided that buying The Flash every month wasn't worth it for the eight pages of Firestorm. <laughs> oh, I feel your pain, buddy. I feel your pain. <laughs> Captain Entropy says, uh, in my experience, the best Maxi Zeus tale is the lead story in Detective 483, The Curse of Crime Alley. Maxi actually comes across as interesting and menacing. Of course, it's by Daniel O'Neill and Don Newton, and it bore a cover drawn by a certainly highly praised artist with the name of many syllables. That team could have made Gargamel cool. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I... Pr- uh, I was going to say thank you so much, Captain. I put a call out asking people what like the best Maxi Zoo story was because I I've never read necessarily a good Maxi Zoo story. So uh, thank you for the for these. I'm going to check these out. Yeah, that down drone by Don Newton. Yeah, that's a win. 
Uh, Mike Dinah says that you guys did it due to your sheer power. There will be who's who omnibus. All it took was eight years of your podcasting life. Oh, Lord. I've been listening for eight years now. Okay. Maybe <laughs> it wasn't just you, but I would like to think so. I'm so looking forward to this omnibus. Should it get printed? Absolutely. It's absolutely us. Yeah. Oh, totally. Great googly moogly. Did Ty Templeton knock it out of the park on Rex the Wonder Dog? I'm not a huge animal pet fan of animal or animal comics fan. Sorry, Rob. But this makes me definitely want to pick up a series drawn by Ty. I don't care what it's about. If it looks like this, I will buy all the issues. Awesome. They're from Liz Ann Oswald, who's got her own YouTube uh, channel, so check that out. Uh, Liz writes, Rex the Wonder Dog. You know how Rob feels about the Legion of Superheroes? That's how I feel about Rex. Sorry, I love dogs. It's just no. Wow. Liz threw down the gauntlet, man. She dissed on Rex. Uh, you know, that's dangerous territory, but she redeems herself. She says, I can hear the TV theme song for the Teen Titans cartoon every time I hear the group name. Uh, Puffy, Amy, Yui. I probably said that wrong. The song sticks with me. Okay, so you redeemed yourself a little bit there, Liz. But, uh, ooh, coming out swinging at Rex the Wonder Dog. Ooh, that's not cool. All right, coming up next is Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for Girl blog. Martin writes, in the spirit of letter writer Jazz Walker, be nice to Arlene Lowe, the proofreader, as anyone else who might have made a mistake. Um, as regards of mistake in the name of a character or place, just because a person works in DC as a proofreader doesn't mean they know all of the characters. If anything, negatively criticizing the writers and editors. Besides, how can you expect anyone to stay awake while reading about Maxi Flaming Zeus, a Batman villain almost as boring as Razaw Dull? Now, I, lots of props there for that comic because that was very, very funny. However, I will say when we went after the proofreader, it was for typesetting mistakes. It was not for a uh, little, you know, like getting facts wrong. That's that's on the writer. Right. Yeah. I, right. I don't think we've ever gone after the proofreader for like issue numbers or something like that. Yeah. That's, not, that's not their job. Uh, he says, gosh, a new code color. But, oh, Rob, how on earth could you state that gray isn't an exciting hue? <laughs> <laughs> There's that sigh. Yeah, we go. Uh, as for reviving Huzu, I'd model the format on the original in terms of being a comic book rather than a series of choose-your-own-filing system inserts. Don't invite people to make decisions. It just leads to dithering or bad decisions. <laughs> but, for the, but for the content, I'd follow the second version, i.e. a selection from the entire AZ every time, avoiding the chance of anyone seeming left out. It becomes a case of, we've not got to that yet. Also, it means we don't get a bunch, uh, boring bunching of characters with Black or Doctor in their name. <laughs> As we're finding out going through who's editing. So then we're from Philemon. Uh, and I am very happy to announce, folks, good news. Uh, Philemon has, uh, in a landslide victory, as we want all elections to look, Philemon has been reelected as the president of the Jericho fan club. So congratulations, Philemon. Uh, he is the leader we can all agree on for, for, for Jericho. The ballots were a total disaster. Uh, he says, uh, Ragman, I rolled my eyes when Jag said he turned the page and lost his breath with the Animal Man entry. It's pretty, don't get me wrong. But then I flipped the page past Panther and had the exact reaction to Broderick's work here. The perspective, the detail in the cityscape, the color and use of shadow. This is easily the best art piece in the issue. It's, the it is stunning. You're, it you're, is. And then he mentions Rex, uh, Rex the Wonder Dog. Templeton draws a good fluffy boy. Or fluffy uh, good boy. I inverted those words. <laughs> a fluffy good boy. That's what I, you refer to dogs as good boys. Yes. 
Philemon is an English teacher, so watch out. He'll get you if you don't get it right. So uh, He writes, I never understood this version of the teen slash team Titans. This storyline, coupled with the too similar Armageddon 2001 event, always makes my head hurt if I think about it too hard. Honestly, this is a bit of a nader in the, my favorite comic book franchise until Dan Jurgens saves the property in 1996. That odd assortment of characters, Argent, Prism, Risk, and Johto, all had the charm that this lot was lacking. You know, I'm, uh, two things. Uh, first, I'm glad he brought up that Dan Jurgens Teen Titans series with uh, Argent, Prism, Risk, and Johto. That was a great book. Uh, I really enjoyed that book, and I didn't expect to, and it was a lot of fun. And then the second thing is, again, as an English teacher, uh, I had to look up the word nadir. I, didn't, I had no idea what that word was. Uh, then uh, speaking of Jericho, my copy of this issue oddly stops after Valor, other than a note that says Titan's Hunt never happened. Oh, terribly sorry. Terribly, terribly sorry. Then uh, in the comments following that, there's a big, long discussion about various incarnations of Titans. And Cisco poses the question because you're making me wonder what the worst era of Titans actually was. And Martin Gray comes out first, uh, and I think everyone sort of agrees with him. He goes, nothing compares for the sheer awfulness with the new 52 Titans. Just horrible. Yeah, uh, Martin, you're not wrong. That new te- the, the Teen Titans in the New 52 were so bad. I had been buying Teen Titans for almost or ver- all the various versions of Titans for pretty much 20 years nonstop. And that new, that new 52 version, I stuck with it for probably five or six issues. And it was just so god-awful terrible that uh, it, I haven't bought a Titans issue since. Um, other than, well, I guess you could say I buy Young Justice, that, that kind of Titans. But either way, yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> Mike Cole says, uh, I've been listening to your show on my long commute to work. Just as I finally got caught up, you are almost at the last issue. My love is for the original series, but it has been fun revisiting the era of the Loose Leaves. I, re- I read the original series as a kid. It taught me so much about the vast DC universe, which I still love. I enjoy the insights and opinions of the hosts. I started listening to more shows on your network, and I've enjoyed those too. Thanks for the great show. Thank you, Mike. And I know I can speak for Shag in this instance. This is one of the rare times that uh, we're happy that Who's Who becomes the gateway to other shows on the network. Oh, without a doubt. So we're so glad to have you, Mike. Thank you. Yep. Uh, wonderful, man. Thanks for the totally. nice comment. Totally. Then we heard from Tim Levine, who, by the way, is better known as Mr. Dr. Jennifer Schwartz Levine. Uh, Tim says, I consider Maxi Zeus as one of the worst Batman villains, but your best bet for a good story is probably Batman number 470 by uh, Grant Brayfogel. Well, thank you, Tim. I appreciate that. And by the way, if you, if you don't know Tim's wife, she was on a JLI podcast episode. She's absolutely phenomenal. And it was just a fascinating discussion about feminism in the JLI. Dr. Jennifer Swartz Levine is fantastic. And Tim is a wonderful guy. I've got to know him through Facebook and stuff like that. And so glad to have him around. So and thanks for commenting, Tim. And then he's, Cisco uh, followed that up, and he says, I really feel like they couldn't get King Tut. This is back on Maxi Zeus. I really feel like they couldn't get King Tut because the TV rights entanglement, so they made Maxi Zeus. You know, you might be onto something there, Cisco. Then we heard from Ward Hill Terry. He says, judging only on the samples you provided, I am not too impressed by this collection of illustrations. Mostly it's because it seems that there's no sense of place in most of them. Where is the Injustice League? In front of the closed bleachers of an abandoned gym? At the lumber section of a big box hardware store? Is Animal Man posing in front of a flamingo wallpaper? Uh, And going down a little bit further in his comments, he goes, this is why the picture of Rex stands out. First, the character is clearly delineated. The background is evocative of the American Southwest. Mesas, mountains, and scrubby pines can be found, and they don't call attention to themselves. The color of the sky, which reminds me of a sunset, not a crisis, and the foreground are bold yet flat to enhance Rex's white fur. This is glorious. You know, Ward uh, Ward Hill Terry is interesting. He's a... 
he's a grumpy. I, I adore the guy. He's wonderful. And uh, we got together and hung out one time in a lobby, and we just argued all night long. I adored it. He uh, he, he always like complains, and he's never happy with modern comics. And I say that with uh, with love, my heart word. But man, his insights. He just notices stuff I never would have thought of. Like I never would have seen that connection where so many of the backgrounds are just nonsensical play. The Timothy Hunter one's a perfect example we did today. It's a nonsensical nothingness. So uh, that's really interesting observation, Ward. Uh, Ward Hill Terry, thank you for sharing that. He's also very tall. I just want to point that out. Man, and he's got great hair. The guy is he's a musician. He's a, he, he teaches science. It's like, God, he's kind of gross. He's so cool. So yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, Gene Hendricks from the HammerStrikes.com and does several shows on the Two True Truth, Two Two Freaks Network says, Oh boy, I'm about to get kicked out of the clubhouse. <laughs> he's Rex the Wonder Dog, right? Not Wonder Mouse. I'm sorry, but Ty Tevels is a great artist, but he doesn't know how to draw a German Shepherd head. I'm currently on my fourth German Shepherd, and one of those was white. In no way does the head on the stall look like a German Shepherd. Pomeranian? Maybe. German Shepherd? Nope. And then he provided us pictures of uh, what a white German Shepherd looks like of his dog, Athena. I, it's Ty Templeton, Gene. I mean, come on. I mean, this is a dog that's been on the moon. I don't think I'm really <laughs> that worried about that it looks exactly like a German Shepherd. Now, all right, I uh, I agree with you on the Ty Templeton and all that. However, Gene did the one unexpected thing, which is he brought in Athena. You and I met Athena. Um, Athena oh, and that's I, right. yeah, did. Athena and I shared a special bond. Uh, me and that dog, uh, we loved each other quite a bit. Maybe maybe in a little bit of an unhealthy way. But uh, so I, I, I'm torn now because of my love for Athena and my love for Rex. I I, I am my heart is in two. Thanks, Gene. So, uh, then we heard from Alan W. Wright from the boldoutlaw.com all about uh, Robin Hood. And he, he has a, a lot to say about Green Arrow here, but I'm just going to pick out a piece of it. Because apparently it was a joke amongst the DC editors that Mike Grell's comics take place in their own continuity. I had never heard this. This is interesting. Oh, the Grellverse, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it was rare enough for Mike Grell to even call Oliver Green Arrow. In The Longbow Hunters and Wonder Year, Oliver mentions that nickname with disdain, but it's not used in the monthly Green Arrow comic series. When we see Hal Jordan appear in Green Lantern, he's not wearing a ring or a costume. It's clear that Hal and Ollie did some hard-traveling heroics in the past, but you never know from those grell red issues that they fought and worked for aliens. In Grell's continuity, the JLA didn't happen, and Grell's disputes that Black Canary lost her powers as a result of the Longbow Hunters, she never had them. Uh, I expect this is why the pre-Grell Green Arrow career is given so little attention in the Who's Who entry, and possibly why Mike Grell did not write this entry. Wow. Okay, so you'd heard of a Grell verse before? Yes, he mentioned it, uh, Mike Grell himself mentioned it in an interview, uh, I forget, maybe with Back Issue, where he said that he kind of did his own little corner, and apparently it was, I think it was either Joe Orlando or Julia Schwartz uh, joked and said, uh, what pl- somebody said, what planet is this story taking place from? And they said it was Earth Grell. <laughs> he just has his own thing. Sort of like Earth B when he's talking about Bob Haney, I guess, right? right. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Um, and, and as you, if you listen closely, folks, you can hear Darren Sutherland typing a comment right now. <clears throat> All right, folks. Then we heard from Diablo Frank. He went to the extreme. Like, I guess maybe the Who's Editing episodes weren't coming out fast enough, so he needs some other place to outpour his uh, dissertation or manifesto, as he likes me to call it. Uh, Four thousand plus words in this in these comments. Oh my god, Frank! So um, you should take the time to read these, folks. Really good stuff. And Frank was really on point this time too. I mean, really great feedback. Now, if, if you don't know Frank, he's from the Roll Spine Podcast Network. Uh, does shows like the Marvel Handbook, many others. You can also find him in your local insane asylums. So we'll start off with a few of the comments here. 
says, who's who in the DC universe isn't as good as the definitive directory. So what he means is the loose leaf compared to the original comic version. Uh, because the loose leaf is cumbersome, fragile, flatter format that employs a pinup image to varying degrees of success and a single page of text to either squeeze or inflate the space. It doesn't have the historical scope of the original and is nowhere near as schizophrenic because it's not employing five decades of surviving artists and esoteric properties. It's an overview of the post-crisis DCU up to the early 90s, and it's jarring when a Kurt Swan or a near-blind Jim Aparo pops up instead of par for the course. Uh, you make a fair point, Frank. I can't argue that point. You're right. Um, the schizophrenic nature of the original Who's Who is, I think, part of the reason we all love it so much. Mm-hmm. Then Frank goes on to say about uh, Art Nichols and the uh, Injustice League. He says... Um, I don't like the various, I'm sorry, this is just about Injustice League, because uh, I don't like the various attempts to make a straight Injustice League, as the Mort collection shown here is perfect for the nonsensical concept. You can add or remove a bit, but never replace this silly core. Yeah, that, this Injustice League works absolutely perfectly. And I, I'm pretty soon in our JLI podcast coverage, we're going to get to Justice League Antarctica, which is the, that version of that league. So I'm very interested to see if it still holds up together when they're in sort of a human, uh, hero sort of mode. Because I haven't read the thing in years. Now, uh, he talks about Nightwing here. I I had said DC didn't have a lot of faith in Nightwing because it took so long for Nightwing to get his own series. He says, I would strongly dispute Shag's assertion that DC Comics lacked faith in Nightwing. Robin? Sure. But that's why they kept killing and replacing him. But Nightwing is down to Marv Wolfman. As mentioned on the show, uh, after his separation with George Perez, Wolfman suffered years of crippling writer's block for which he arguably never recovered from. The Nightwing identity was introduced in one of the last major story arcs of Titans, and Nightwing was still viewed as one of the team's biggest draws through the Baxter series. Trust that lots of people wanted to use Nightwing, but out of deference to one of DC's most popular writers and most successful franchises, that wasn't allowed to happen, at least until after Total Chaos. And the visible decline in quality across the Titan books in the year plus that followed. Right around New Titans 100, Wolfman's plans for the characters were dissolved. Dick was swiftly written out of the book, and Control of Nightwing was returned to the Bat family. He was prominent in Night's End, became Batman temporarily in Legacy, then got a one-shot special followed by a miniseries where the character was given his last major costume overhaul. The ongoing was launched within a couple or three years after Nightwing gained free agency from the Titans. That's all fair, Frank. Can't argue with that. Then he says about Pantha, because there are probably a few bigger fans of Pantha out there than me, but I couldn't count on too many. Admittedly, it's probably a shallow pool to begin with. <laughs> that cracked me up. Uh, he asks, is Pooch the Frank Stallone of dogs? That makes perfect sense, because uh, Pooch is like the brother of, the, of, of uh, Rex the Wonder Dog. So Rex is famous. Pooch is like, oh, yeah, that other guy. Uh, okay. All right. I'm mm. I, I think that's an insult to Pooch calling him Frank oh, Stallone. Oh snap! <laughs> oh, come on, really? Is that much of that much of a hot take? Really? Come on. Uh, then he says Shag missed a decimal place on those Team Titans number one solo variants. Okay, so in the last episode we talked about Team Titans, and I said they produced five different versions of number one, and in the back of each one of those versions they had an eight-page story as a backup. And if you wanted all five of the story, you have to buy it. Well, turns out I got that wrong, folks. It was eighteen pages actually, not eight pages. So you had to buy all five issues, and you'd get like the front half of the book, and then you get eighteen pages in the back. And I recently, after we finished that episode, I continued on with my two Titan, new Titans run, and I did read Team Titans number one on the. DC Universe app, and once they've collected not just the front story, but all the backup stories, number one is 115 pages long. Holy crap! I was exhausted by the end of it. So anyway, Frank goes on to say, and if you thought DC wanted their own X-Force before, you really need to hear this quote from Rob Liefeld on uh, CSBG. This is a quote from Rob Liefeld, so you know it's true. 
He says, I proposed a new Titans book in 1991. Team Titans was the proposal. John Peterson, who edited the book, approved it. Marv Wolfman signed on to co-write it. And then I couldn't make the deal stick with Dick Giordano. God bless him. We just couldn't make the numbers work. So I took my proposal and merged it with an existing indie project I had called Youngblood. Next, next thing you know, poof, Image Comics was born. Shaft was intended to be speedy. Vogue was a new Harlequin design. Combat was a Kahundian warrior circa the Legion of Superheroes. Did it for Photon and Die Hard uh, were Star Labs robots. I forgot who Chapel was supposed to be. So there you have it, the secret origin of Youngblood. Dude, that's crazy. I have no idea. That is amazing. To think Dick Georgiana could have killed Image in its crib. <laughs> uh, what could have been? What could have been? And then one more comment. Frank and Tom Panarese go back and forth for a little while talking about Team Titans. And one of the things that everyone agrees on about Team Titans that was horrible is this this Dick Grayson Nightwing character from the far future comes back to the past and he's causing all kinds of problems. And he's just he's just again, the book's a hot mess by this point. So he goes crazy and he rebrands himself as instead of being Nightwing, this this evil version from the future starts calling himself Deathwing. Which is just so 90s. Anyway, Frank actually changed his name on the comment thread to Death Frank at that point, which just, I laughed so hard at that. So that cracked me up. Uh, He says, I'm guessing Brian Stelfreeze wanted to draw a 30s car and his editor wanted to see him do it. Although the Untouchables must have gotten some kind of bump on their first listing. I've never seen them in a comic book not called Who's Who. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Um, And then Frank goes on to talk about from Teen Titans. He says, we don't talk enough about how the wildebeest society is one of the most ridiculous conceits of the modern era. Teams of James Bondian scientists and soldiers who are working for Jericho, who I guess lives off Slade Wilson, uh, Slade Wilson's child support payments and art commissions. Um, they work out of secret layers to pretend to be a single minor supervillain who fought the Teen Titans a handful of times in the 1980s. And most importantly, they wear a cumbersome one-size-fits-all cybernetic suit with yak hair glued all over it, pretending to be an African animal most people have never even heard of which all of that is hilarious. Then he goes, I suppose they do this in order to scam subsidies from the World Wildlife Federation. And I say this as someone who sees the Titans hunt as a personal high watermark of a super team comic who is still wistful about the lack of more appearances of the baby, a wildebeest and mama duo post-1994. Oh my gosh. I hadn't like, you just follow the wildebeest thing. You don't step back to think about it, but you're right, Frank, the fact that they were this giant society and they always pretended to just be one bad guy is, is absolutely ludicrous. So uh, thank you. Then he says, uh, you talked about Rex being Captain America. He says Dick Grayson should be DC's Captain America, not their daredevil. He's one of the greatest team leaders in the history of comics with real world international name recognition. Good point. And then he goes on to mock how they just stuck him in Bloodhaven instead. Uh, And then finally, he says lots of addenda, but I'm still in denial that there's left less than half a dozen episodes left. And two of them question mark are goddamn impact issues. You (laughs) bastards insisted on leaving that crap near the end. 2020 wasn't depressing enough. (laughs) I mean, first of all, like 2020, I mean, like we're going to get to the end of who's who in 2020. That's not going to happen. Secondly, I think we've said numerous times that impact is not going to be the final iteration of this show. And Frank keeps taking us to task for making Impact be the end. And we keep saying it's not going to be the end. We have other things planned. It won't be the fight. We're not going to end this run with Impact. So, Frank, right. stop complaining about it. We're not going to do it. It will get covered. And we held it towards yes. towards this era because this is the era it was published in. Right. Exactly. Uh, I mean, for God's sake. And so, by the way, if you want to hear more of Frank's commentary than what we read here, uh, this – this is being uh, serialized in Vanity Fair for the next uh, six years, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Tom, Tom Payrain or Powrain, I'm sorry, P-A-I-R-A-N. Please, Tom, let us know if I'm saying it incorrectly. He says, uh, Dear Rob and Shag, uh, the very first comic book I ever bought was Who's Who number 11, featuring the Joker on the cover. Having grown up watching the new adventures of Batman and the Super Friends, collecting Batman toys and superpowers action figures, I was familiar with many of the heroes and villains of DC. I was fascinated by what I found inside Who's Who. A Green Lantern who was not Hal Jordan? Who was this father of Jade? Uh, why were there so many Johnny Thunders? That's a good question. I continued picking up the series as the original 24 or 26 issue run run came out, followed by the updates. I was a full-fledged comic book guy by the summer of 1989, and my collection has expanded ever since, reading titles like Superman, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman, Astro City, and Fables. Who's Who always been my first love, however. For the longest time, I would have dreams at night that I would find a brand new issue of Who's Who that I had never seen before. Oh. Wow. Sadly, despite the 1999 annuals and loose-leaf edition, this dream has never come true. Until one day it did. While on Pinterest, I stumbled upon a Who's Who entry I had never seen with a credit by Zoom Yukonori. Every so often, I would find another and then another. Earth to Aquaman? Yes, please. Superman's Fortress of Solitude? Awesome. My dreams come true at last, and Mr. Yukonori allowed me to purchase one of the hard copies of Zoom's, Who's Who. Zoom's Who. It is now one of my most treasured comic books. I'm sad to learn of his passing, but very glad to have been led here to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I have a lot of catching up to do, but I've enjoyed every minute of listening to the two of you. Just as Who's Who has a special place in my heart, because it's my first comic book, your podcast will always be special as my first podcast. Well, thank you very much, Tom. That's an amazing note. That was really uh, special and really touching, too, about Zoom. And... Thank you, Tom. You provided uh, the, the perfect segue into uh, normally at this point in the show, we cover what we call Zoom's Who. Zoom, we can always identify the definitive director of the DC Universe. Don't worry. We have not run out of entries. There's still more to go. But you have a rare opportunity, folks. Tom talked about the comic he bought. He has the physical printing of this book. Now, there are no more copies of this physical comic. You can't get it. But now Zoom's family has made available to all of you a digital version of this comic book. So if you go out to our website, Rob, what's our website? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Look for Who's Who, this episode number 15. In the show notes, there's going to be a link there to our website where you can download the file. It's a, it's called a RAR, a RAR file, which is R-A-R. It's basically like a zip file or a CBR type file. If you don't have a, a program that lets you open a RAR file, just get WinRAR, W-I-N-R-A-R. It's a free program. It lets you open it up. And in there, there are going to be very high resolution, all the images from that book, plus more ones Zoom was working on that was going to be in like subsequent volumes of this book that he had put together. Now, it's a huge file, guys. As a, For those of you who have already clicked the button, sorry, I'm getting the warning ahead of time. Uh, it's 100 megs, so it's going to take a lot of download and it's massive. So, But make sure, again, that you've got a program that can open an RAR file and uh, you will just be blown away. It's absolutely stunning. And that's going to be our Zoom's Who entry this time is uh, a gift from Zoom's family to all of you. So enjoy it. It's, it's stunning. It's absolutely amazing. And, uh, yeah, with those additional ones, it gives us more stuff to cover, Rob. <laughs> the man just keeps on giving. <laughs> I've said it before. Um, sadly, he's, uh, he's been gone now almost a year, and he's still producing better stuff than I am. So it's just, <laughs> it's just embarrassing. So, All right, folks, this is part of the show where we thank every single person who shared the Who's Who show on their social media timeline on Facebook and Twitter. We sincerely appreciate it. It is a very long list of names. It's like reading a phone book. But we want to recognize each person because they're part of this community. We talked a little bit earlier about how important this community is uh, to us. Uh, and so thank you, everyone, including Al Girding, Between the Pages. Billy Delicious, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Damian Drought Whiter, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Comics Vault, DC Now, a DC fan podcast. 
Dr. Pop Culture, Bowling Green State University, Ed Moore, Fen Film Friday's podcast, Green Lantern HG, It's Plastic Man, Jeff Weinberg, Justice Trek 2020, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast with Kyle Benning, Con L, Lizanne Oswald, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Ev, Max Reads Comics, Max Romero, Michael Kramer, Mick Jameson, Michael Dynas, Old Bolty Neck, Paul Kian, Philemon, Pop Culture Affidavit, Relatively Geeky, Old Spine Podcast, Scott Slangword, Scott X, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Sean Marrick, Siskoid, Steve Givens, The 108th Sage, The Bat Pod, The Mirror Factory, Tim Price, Orlock Thanos Podcast, and Willie Yarborough. Awesome, folks. Now, you can go out to our website. Uh, Rob's given us that address a couple times now, so uh, do it one more time, Rob. Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Yep. Look for Who's Who in number 15 gallery post where we will post some of the issues, uh, some of the images from this issue. Uh, just a handful here, there. You can check them out. So there you can uh, sort of read along as with the coverage. So be sure to check that out. And I'm so glad we always tell you at the end of the episode that now that you've already listened to it. So anyway, but coming up next issue. Now, we're not going to get to next issue right away. We are going to do a Who's That at least and maybe who knows what else maybe in between. But when we do get to Who's Who uh, in the DC Universe number 16, we will get to talk about Batman by Norm freaking Brayfogle. Catwoman, not by Todd McFarlane. <laughs> Cosmic Odyssey. Black Lightning. Supergirl. Taya Al Ghul. Major Victory. Infinity Inc. Monarch. Uncle Sam. Phantasm. Forever. Pa- Again? <laughs> Krypton. Reprints of Desaad, Laurel Gand, and Maxwell Lord with color corrected borders. <laughs> and an ending with Ambush Bug and many more. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait to get to that, folks. So until next time, who's, who's next? next? Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Man and our man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Last and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Etrick and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Oh man, we forgot Slipknot! Did you fake an orgasm? What? No! I have too much respect for everyone here! How could you even... Because I didn't want to feel left out, okay?